All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. And welcome back to part two. Yeah, we found out we need to do it <laughs> to a two-parter <laughs> of this incredible econ lesson that uh, Victoria Johnson is so kind as to give us in this show today that is all about understanding Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Yeah, but in the context of that, also crypto and the general economy and the fiat system. So uh, let's just return to where we left off. Now, before the break, okay. I have, uh, there's many loose threads. And uh, let me remind you, I'm still wondering how they can, uh, I'm worried for my own wallet here, obviously. How can they crack <laughs> down on uh, protesters? Because that's what one of the things they do uh-huh. in this new uh, accelerated world order. The plan was always, of course, to to have us in a centralized uh, social and economical credit system where they can control uh, everything from a speech to a behavior, you know, um, obedient drones. So how come they could already now start it? Mm -hmm. Of course, it it creates huge outrage when people get it that that's happening. Mm -hmm. You don't have you didn't take your vaccine. Bam, no money for you. But how can they physically do it technically? Well, it's interesting, actually. One of the one of the Bitcoin conferences I went to in 2018, I, I went to this fascinating lecture, which was based on a book called The Starfish and the Spider. And the premise of this book was it was talking about the difference between centralized systems and decentralized systems. And the analogy it used was the invasion of America. So when um, the Spanish invaded um, South America, they found it much easier to conquer it because they were based on more centralized systems. A lot of their communities would kind of have a central figure. So as long as they Mm. could get to the central figure and cut them down, they could destroy that whole society. Mm. But they struggled much more when it came to North America because a lot of the Indian cultures were very decentralized. There wasn't there wasn't a central figure. You know, most of their communities had a very... um, integrated belief system Mm. and it was the belief system that helped helped to keep them organized and so Mm. and they struggled it took them over about 200 years to kind of conquer the north american indians Mm. and in the end the only way in which they could disrupt that organization was to challenge their belief systems um and i think you know what people think and believe is really their ultimate power and ultimately that will be that will be the weakness. And I think that is the aspect that the elites are attacking right now with the kind of the whole blockchain versus Bitcoin thing. Yeah, they were uh, want to undermine and deliberately confuse our understanding of, of Bitcoin. Absolutely. But, but uh, me, they can't do... Uh, the only way they can stop me is by turning off my account. Do they have that ability? No, if you hold your own wallet and you you have control of the keys... Um, they can't. But what, what about the protesters then? And why does everyone say this is what's coming? They're going to, with rules and regulations, uh, of course they want rules and regulations where they can do it. But is it even, I thought Bitcoin had an inherent protection against that kind of yeah. power abuse. The only reason they were able to achieve some sort of success with that in Canada is because they targeted the exchanges. 
So if you had your Bitcoin held on an exchange, they could contact the exchanges and ask them to close your account or stop you from accessing it. Mm. Um, but I think there was one company, I can't remember what it was called, Nunchuck or something. And uh, they weren't an exchange. They were just a wallet company. And they wrote this brilliant, they wrote, wrote this brilliant letter, actually. Um, I've got it somewhere, but I would need to search for it. But basically, the essence of the letter said, you know, basically, we're a software company. We don't hold we don't hold anyone access to anyone's um, anyone's Bitcoin. And uh, in fact, we we suggest you learn how wallets and private keys work. Yours sincerely. I mean, it was a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant letter. Uh, it's somewhere on my Twitter feed, actually. You'd have to scroll oh. back a bit to, to find it, but I did tweet it there. Oh, yeah. But it was just a brilliant letter because it was basically kind of saying, you can subpoena us all you like, but there's nothing we can do because the point they were making is if people have their own keys and their own wallets on their computer, mm. the, the government's can't come after you. But there are weaknesses in the system that they can attack. So for example, if you're keeping all of your money on an exchange, they can contact the exchange and they can mm. they can ask them to to shut down in the national interest or stop withdrawals in the national interest. This is terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And uh they've also got the ability to track accounts, but of course their ability to track accounts is dependent on the resources they have access to, because this is another interesting point. I mean, a lot of people worry about the power that government have. But one of the reasons why government have so much power is because at the moment with the fiat system, they've got access to unlimited resources. If they need more, they just print it. That's how they mm. manage to get the First World War going. But the thing is, the longer bit Bitcoin survives and the more it's adopted by the general population, the more it weakens their power, because the only way they have of enforcing any rule they have is by the resources they have access to, which ultimately in the past has meant our taxes. But the thing is, if they're collecting our taxes and those taxes are constantly being devalued, they've got the same kind of problem that the innkeeper and his wife had in Les Miserables, because they can't pay for things as quickly as the value of the money they're collecting is being devalued. Mm. And of course, in order to inflict a punishment, they need to they need to pay the people who will be tracking those transactions. Whereas if you've got Bitcoin businesses who are more profitable and more rewarding to work for, all of the people who might work for the government might actually prefer to work for one of the Bitcoin businesses. <laughs> yeah, because that's where the money is now. Exactly. So what that means is all of their power is constantly being undermined the longer this system exists. Mm -hmm. um, and so even though it would seem they have a lot of power, that's in some ways an illusion based on the way in which we've always understood the world to be up until mm. now. Well, you remember from Game of Thrones, right? Mm -hmm. Power is power. So uh, at the end of the day, you could get a dagger on your throat and, and you'll have to comply. But of course, that's physically impossible because even if they ban it, mm -hmm. even if they go that far, mm -hmm. and actually the more of their businesses and oligarchs and institutions who invest in, in Bitcoin, the less likely that will be an outcome because they don't want to cut off their own. First, they have want to hedge their bets, right? So they go into this market and then that stops them from slaughtering it totally. They just want to find a way to rig it. But anyway, even if they would go that far and say, you're now a terrorist if you have Bitcoin mm -hmm. and, and you're going to get the death penalty if mm -hmm. we catch you with it. Can we envision a way we could go on underground without them even noticing? But, uh, number one is that 
like me, I don't use Bitcoin. I just save in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So the little Bitcoins I have mm -hmm. are just resting there. And then they're obviously going to be untraceable. But could we envision a system where we could just go on without being... Maybe that's going to be the next revolution that they put uh, some kind of anonymous masking uh, thing into it. The, I hope some are thinking of that because we may need it, you know. Well, I mean, if I go back to what you were saying about um, the Game of Thrones analogy, yes, power mm. is power, but only while you have the ability to pay for it. Because right. you know, the only reason you can have eight soldiers surrounding you with a knife to your throat is because the only reason Cersei had power was because they had the ability to pay for it. But once once they... Yeah, you're right. It's the iron bank who has the power. Money is power. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and the, the moment the iron bank starts kind of going, oh, Maybe we won't be giving you that loan after all. You know, mm. suddenly their suddenly their power structure starts to crumble. Mm. So ultimately, the fiat currency is their weakest link, and so by Bitcoin undermining that, that ultimately is working away at the foundation. And it won't happen straight away. So certainly, it may well be in the short term they find people to make examples of, which makes everyone else fearful. But the thing is. It's like whack-a-mole. The moment you hit one, the more that other people understand it and understand what's happening, they might hit one, but then they'll have 10 others that pop up that they have yeah. to. And if they've got limited resources, they might be able to get one. But the more other people learn about it and grow, you can't you can't um, execute everybody. No. So this is why the idea is so powerful, because the more the more people understand it, the more they realize that for every single person you teach about this, you're making the network stronger, even if they don't run a node, even if they don't own any, yeah. just the yeah. fact that they understand what's happening. If mm. someone who owns Bitcoin is targeted, you realize that that's, that's an attack on something that's a threat to them. So just by attacking it, they expose themselves. You know, just the fact that you're asking me that question about Canada in this interview, you know, straight away, it's just kind of like, well, they attacked it, they wouldn't attack it if it wasn't a threat. Mm. Yeah. And also, not only that, not only did they not attack it, they might have got it in Canada, but that still leaves the rest of the world talking mm. about it. I mean, I live in the UK. I wasn't affected by that. No, It hasn't affected my ability to use Bitcoin. But the fact that they did it, I'm now using that letter from in all of my presentations to kind of going, look what Canada tried and look at the response they got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's hilarious. So the more... the and and human beings don't realize the power they have collectively, especially mm. when they have a collective understanding about something, which mm. is why education is so important. Mm. My mission is not so much to get people to buy it, but just understanding it is so powerful yeah. and understanding the lessons behind it and the things that it disrupts really gives it gives humanity their power back because it reestablishes their property rights. Yeah. That's the key thing. The, when the Bolsheviks took over Russia, the one thing it wanted to convince the people of was that they shouldn't own property, the government should own it collectively, and therefore they could distribute it fairly. Mm. And it sounded like a good argument on the surface of it. But in the process of doing that, it actually took away from the one, the workers the one thing that would secure their self-sovereignty. Because without mm. the ability to own property, you use your ability to transact. Not everyone wants the same things, but by having your own property and having the ability to exchange it, yeah. you are able to make that choice. Whereas if someone takes that away, yeah. uh, The anarchists tried in vain to explain this to the people who follow the Bolsheviks. 
because uh, the Bolsheviks had the sound uh, anti-authoritarian vibe. The people uh, they supported it, but they fell for the. And this is what statists still fell for. They fell for the yeah, but the state is there for you and me. Yeah, it's to protect us. You like you said. Together we have lots of power. We are the ninety-nine percent. All that is true. There's only one weakness with the whole idea, mm-hmm. and if that weakness didn't exist, I would be fully on it. And that's that. It is vulnerable and corruptible yeah. for the most powerful to hijack. And you see that everywhere in the world today, especially today. It was better hidden before, mm-hmm. but in the world today, I would say that those states. Have you been to Scandinavia? Ah uh, yes, I have. So the best functioning states in the world today, and it's not just because of uh, economy. It's also to do with culture. It's to do with tradition. It's to do with how it's organized. But the best argument for state power today is here mm-hmm. at this part of the world, because here the system, quote unquote, works. Mm-hmm. So when uh, that even if you contact the tax uh, collectors they are like it's like a business service minded they are like rate us how did we do mm-hmm. everybody is very welcoming in all public and private uh, institutions and so they have this illusion of being everybody in my country mm-hmm. 90% buys into this we are together and mm-hmm. It, it's to the, for the culture and everything. But I see, and those who are eyes to see can see how they're trying, for example, with COVID, right? We we too have a, like, a kind of like an NHS. Mm-hmm. Only I think it's a better model because NHS is both run and financed by the state. Mm-hmm. We have uh, like lots of private, mm-hmm. but still it's free at the point of service. Okay. So you can have your own business. You understand? Mm-hmm. So it's the best of both worlds. So I, I can see why Scandinavians are sleeping in general, because it still works. When our states start cracking, obviously mm-hmm. cracking, that's when uh, my people will wake up. Because you saw it on the COVID. There's no interest for the health people here to mm-hmm. be a proponent of the vaccine scam. The yeah. interest in America and other places is the profit. It's the huge profits, of course. But here, mm-hmm. there's no interest like that. So why? And, and Sweden didn't even lock down. So both Denmark, Sweden, Iceland and Norway mm-hmm. followed most of the pandemic, um, should I say, directives mm-hmm. except on and this i find very interesting on different points they opposed it mm-hmm. it's as if our bureaucrats knew what was going on mm-hmm. and didn't want to fully be on board because there's nothing in it for us but mm-hmm. they didn't all protest uh, or, or deviate from the same things like the swedes chose not to lock down at all yeah the danes what was it they did i think the danes were the ones who started banning certain vaccines. Mm -hmm. The Icelanders were the ones who made everything public. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for Iceland and Israel during this process, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't even have scientific arguments against much of the lies because Mm -hmm. they made everything public, which Mm -hmm. is what you need. You need free access to information. So I've been trying to analyze, and this is, of course, a huge detour here, but it's for my Scandinavian listeners. So I try to analyze why is it that the Scandinavian system are on board? And I think it's raw power because, first of all, many of them are stupid. They don't understand what really goes on in the world. Mm -hmm. Second, they are chickens. 
they're not gonna <laughs> we we don't have statesmen like in the old days where they were talking against both soviet union and america with impunity mm. we don't have those folks anymore mm. we have careerists like everyone else mm. and although they're brainwashed to the social democratic ideals like everyone else is you know believe in the state and the state is us and it will protect you and which is wonderful if it was like that if it worked but they are going to they can't stand up against uh, the military industrial complex or, or the oligarchs in the world the you know CIA Pentagon whatever they just uh, state secretary of america leans on them and they jump so this is why even this experiment that has been allowed to unfold in scandinavia with a bernisan is used us as an example all the time look how well it works mm. doesn't matter it's vulnerable and it can be crushed any time Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you soon how we can envision that states can adopt the Bitcoin system. But I want to. I want to. So interesting. This track we're on. So you are basically saying that it's activism that's driving you, which is obvious. But that it's not important, really. That you, because most people associate these crypto missionaries as salespeople, right? mm-hmm. selling used cars. Right? Mm-hmm. And yes, there is some enthusiasm based on greed. But I would say all the Bitcoin advocates are actually coming from, uh, it's like a paradigm you're spouting more than anything. Else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that- I think that's a good word. It, yeah. it, it's a good word. It's, um, it's a different foundation. If you think about economics is fundamental, really, you know, it's none of us these days, especially in the West, can operate our lives without having some kind of um, association with money. You know, it, our lives re- require, require it um, absolutely. I mean, and our level of comfort is directly related to the amount you have of it or don't have of it. And so it's just some, such a fundamental uh part of our lives to such an extent that most people never really give it much thought. They just use it automatically. Um, and it's only when you're really forced to think about it for for various reasons, which I've been forced to think about it, that you kind of think it just affects, it mm. affects so much. And, and it's like so many things when you take it for granted, you kind of analyze it less. You just, you know, most people are focused on how they get more of it. They're not really focused on, well, why do I need more of it? And yeah. why haven't I got as much of it as I should have? And ha- and and so, and even in the crypto space, you see this, you know, you see a lot of people advocating for Bitcoin because it's a way to kind of get rich quick, but they don't understand why it has the value it has. Um, and even from that perspective, I think when Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto invented it, it's almost like he anticipated that mm. with the way in which he he programmed the algorithm. So the way in which the algorithm works is, yes, mining a block of transactions is what creates the Bitcoin. But um, the reward also changes every four years. So initially, when uh, he set it up, the reward for mining a block of transactions was 50 bitcoins. So if you if you mined a block of transactions, you got 50 bitcoins. Four years later, that was halved to 12 and a half bitcoins. Then it was um halved to 6.25 bitcoins, which is where we are now. And then the next time it halves, that will go down by half again. And because of this, this is one of the things that seems to influence the trajectory of the price. It, the price doesn't go up in a straight line. And so what we tend to find is that 
after a halving, what that's doing is it, it's affecting the supply and demand. So it's got to the stage where people see that it's valuable and they want more of it. The miners also need the Bitcoin because they have to sell it in order to pay for their electricity. Mm. And so what happens is this frenzy kind of builds as people understand how valuable it is. And so the price ends up going way above um, the actual cost to mine it. And this is where you kind of get these blow off tops. And um, and then what happens is there's kind of like a, a change of sentiment where it becomes too expensive to mine. And so you get some of the miners dropping off and this affects the hash power. And then the price starts to drop. And so what happens is the price kind of goes up in cycles. The over- the the long term trajectory is up as the network grows. But because of the intricacies of how the software works, it's almost like it's anticipated this hype cycle. So what it means mm. is it stops people kind of piling into it. So it's, it's self-correct. Yes. So it stops the price from escalating when when belief in the system is kind of out of control. And it kind of gives the whole system a breather. And it's as the price is kind of dropping that everyone kind of steps back, takes, you know, takes a more measured view of things. Um, often when it's in the low periods of the price, that's where a lot of the building and a lot of the fundamental work is worked on. And then as the price halves, you kind of, you get to this stage where um, the miners are slowly drip feeding the Bitcoin that they've mined in the past in order to pay for this electricity. But because there's less available, that's when the trajectory and the price kind of starts off again. And so you kind of get these four year cycles as the price kind of gradually moves up and it it just it just kind of measures everybody's enthusiasm um and so what that does is it stops people people who are interested only in it because they want to get rich because they're looking at it from a fiat based mindset it's just a way of kind of getting more money as the price goes down and they're disappointed because their their ambitions for wealth haven't been fulfilled it then forces them to take a step back and really start to think about well why was I invested in this? I mean, at that point, you can either chuck it away and kind of go, oh, and it'll be work and, worth anything. Or you can step back and think, well, you know, the Bitcoin price has done this in the past. Why is it going down? Why is it that the last time it went down, it then only went down so far and then started going up again? You know, what are the dynamics behind this? What are the bigger reasons why people believe in it? What is the fund- What are the fundamental changes that are going to come about as this technology? And as you start investigating one thing, it'll lead to something else. So for example, there are going to be people who listen to this podcast who are interested in it because of the concept of Bitcoin. People will be at their different levels of learning about it. But just by listening to this podcast, they may come across something that they hadn't thought about before, which will then lead them Mm. off on a trajectory to kind of study something else. And so it kind of becomes like this network of ideas and belief structures that kind of feeds on itself Mm. and kind of becomes its own entity and going back to this story i was telling you about the starfish and the spider you know this these are the strengths and also the weaknesses of a decentralized economy and ultimately the elites who will understand these sorts of dynamics they know that the only way you can really attack bitcoin is through its belief structure so all of the things we believe about how the technology works yeah. um if those could be discredited that's the way that's the way to undermine it and and so i think that explains some of the attack vectors that we're seeing 
Uh, so me even think FTX thing is the excuse they uh, created out of nowhere to ah, crack down yes. on Bitcoin with so-called regulations. But that goes back to my question: if if you can, even if they make laws, they can't really affect the Bitcoin system. They can only ban it, right? They can only slow it down. Mm -hmm. They can't stop it completely because the thing is, laws tend to be defined to the country and the governments that are making those particular laws. And, you know, while you've got a world with lots of different countries which haven't all been interconnected yet, then um, you dis disrupt that system. If we had a world government, they might be able to crack down on it. But because Bitcoin yeah. was introduced before we got a world government, yeah. their power is limited. Um, yeah. So, again, the timing of when it came came in and also the fact that it was introduced just after the financial crisis, you know, that was probably the most concentration you were going to get on the dysfunction of the financial system. Then even though we've had other financial crashes in the past, that one event really focused people's minds on mm. what was going on with the banks. And you had the um, that movement where people were kind of camping out on the banks on uh, yeah, uh, Occupy Wall Street. So people yeah. were inspired by this illusion cracking down to be idealistic because it's obvious that they came from the right place. This wasn't designed to make someone rich, although you could say that there is one pyramid aspect with it, mm -hmm. although I, I'm not sure I would call it that. And that's that if you were very early out yep. and you never used anything or at least you saved a lot of it, yep. you're going to be incredibly wealthy. But I would say that, um, I mean, that's unavoidable because it's a kind of a limited supply in a way, but it's unlimited in that it can uh, you can zoom in and you can... Uh, I don't know the technical world, but you, you break up one coin into smaller coins, smaller coins, smaller yeah. coins. So it is endless, yeah. but it is protected from the fiat endlessness yes. uh, in that the total quantity. And that's super important because then it actually can have a practical value. Yeah. But I want to say, as my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that actually Bitcoin is protected against inflation. It's just because Bitcoin still hasn't taken over the economy because it's working tandem with uh, fiat that they can create these Bitcoin bubbles and make it seem like it's very volatile and and crazy, you know, like, ooh, because this is what people uh, think, right? They just see the reports or the newspapers headlines. And say, oh, oh, crypto has fall again. They never, they never remember when it <laughs> increases. Yeah. The number you gave me in the beginning says it all. Yeah. But uh, you understand what I mean? So am I right? Yeah. Are we protect? If crypto was the only currency working, Yeah. wouldn't we then avoid inflations? Well, again... Bitcoin requires a lot of development. It's still as good as it as it is. It's still not perfect in terms of taking everyday payments. I mean, people are working on that in terms of having a second layer for the for the Bitcoin Bitcoin protocol. So, and again, it's amazing the way in which it has evolved because it's like computers, the internet. Computers started being invented in the late 1960s, but it wasn't until the year 2000 that it was having a powerful effect. Yeah. our day-to-day -day lives in terms of us all needing our own phones. So it takes time for these things to develop and it allows the ideas to kind of be developed, be developed slowly. But in terms of the inflation aspect and the difference to gold, with gold, there's a limited amount of supply because there's a limit to how much you can get out of the ground and you need an investment to kind of get it out of the ground, which is why, you know, Bitcoin's kind of been structured around this idea of mining. But unlike gold, which... You know, we'll have a we'll have a slightly increase in its supply depending on how much you mine. 
With Bitcoin, it's been programmed into the software that no more than 21 million will be created. Now, the problem with gold is once you have gold, you're limited to how small you can kind of break it down to, which is why we've needed a fiat system. um, And, uh, you know, by having pieces of paper uh, matching the amount of gold in the system. But with Bitcoin, you know, one Bitcoin is um, 100 million Satoshis. And if it were ever... If it were ever to get to the stage, for example, where all of the other Bitcoins were lost and only one Bitcoin was left, that one Bitcoin would still be enough to run the entire world's economy because it can be divided infinitely. I want to turn that on its head, too, because the system is so brilliant, whether it was intended or not, in that the earlier you join it, the more value it will have in the future when it unavoidably takes over which is an incentive for people to just you know get out of their asses and get into it as soon as possible right <laughs> and that's a, that's a positive aspect of the pyramid thing you know in normally with a pyramid we think that the bones on the bottom are suffering yeah. there's nothing left for them everybody yeah. gobbles it up at the top that's not what's going on here here you're being premiered here you're going to get the price if you're smart enough to come early enough yes and not use it up just save it yeah but also by the same token you know a lot of people from the early days although they might have had a sense of what its potential was Mm. not that many of them believed it right so you know a lot of the early people i mean it's like the first bitcoin transaction someone paid ten thousand bitcoins for a pizza that person had known that within the space of 10 years that ten (laughs) thousand bitcoins was worth a billion dollars do you think he'd have given it away for a pizza i mean no but but that reminds me the original team that worked with uh, sakamoshi whatever his name is what was the name satoshi nakamoto yeah my uh, my Japanese sufferer. So are they are their identities known? And did they know the identity of uh, Nakamushi? Nakamoto. Some of their identities are known. Um, and no, none of them. None of them have ever. Re- if they did know who he was, they've never revealed who he was. But do we know today? And we probably do, since you say we can see everything. Do we know today if there's like one huge holder of Bitcoin? Like, is there any person out there who owns like 20% or something like that today? Um. Well, when Satoshi Nakamoto first ran the software, he held back the first million Bitcoins, which presumably he still has the keys to. Um, oh. And um, oh my god! So there has there has been one person who maintained that who strongly maintained that he was Satoshi Nakamoto. He's an Australian businessman known as Craig Wright, and uh, a lot of the community Bitcoin community have claimed that he was a fraud and he's taken them to court for claiming he was a fraud. And basically everyone said, look, if you're Satoshi Nakamoto, just sign a Bitcoin transaction for that initial pool of Bitcoin and we will know that you definitely yeah. are Satoshi Nakamoto. And he hasn't been able to do it. Plus, plus study his life and his values, okay? Yeah. If that doesn't jive with this brilliant uh, mercy uh, initiative for the humanity, then it's not him. Well, <laughs> he sounds like a selfish guy. Yeah, well, I mean, and of course, that's what a lot of people in Bitcoin have kind of put it down to. So mm. he's been he's been fairly discredited. But, you know, going back to your original point, no, no one, no one so far has been able to figure out who it is. Mm. So, but are there some big holders today? I believe there are. Um, and um, L- like we're talking 20 percent and up. Some 
It's difficult. It's difficult to know because although they know there are some big wallets out there, there are various services that will track who the big holders are. Although as time goes by, the biggest holders tend to be the exchanges who are holding Bitcoin on behalf of others. Um, you've now got Michael Saylor, who's um, an American billionaire who's very passionate about Bitcoin. He's on lots of podcasts. About- Probably because he's put his fiat billion into it. <laughs> Absolutely. He has. Yeah. He's very open about it. He's yeah. even he's even invested his company's funds into Bitcoin because wow. he said, you know, basically holding that money in cash is like holding a melting ice cube. And this is yeah. a better investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, so it, it fluctuates over time. So a lot of people will talk about it as being a pyramid scheme, not realizing the dynamics of it over time. I mean, you can be in early, but that doesn't mean you'll stay in early. Some Mm. people bought early, but then were so amazed that it went from $3 to $30. I mean, in the space of... Or or didn't believe it would last, so they uh, used as much as possible to get it into fiat. Well, just the fact that if they had a lot of it and it went from $3 to $30, they'd suddenly made more money than they'd ever made in their lives. And they thought that would be it. So they sold Mm. and then they didn't buy Mm. it again. And so... Mm. You know, what happens over time is people can start off with a lot of Bitcoin, but then, you know, if they're uncertain about what they've invested in, that opportunity can be lost and it's really hard to get it back again. But I want I want to smash uh, anyway, any uh, flirting with that idea that that's a problem because compare it to any other currency or just the system we have today. Uh, the system we have today, at least in Bitcoin, if you have 20 percent, yes, you have incredible wealth when Bitcoin takes over. But... Mm-hmm. There's still nothing compared to the digital fiat. Digital fiat basically means who controls the computer. Back to Stalin, right? Who counts the votes? Who controls yeah. the computer? If I control the computer, I have unlimited, and I'm robbing that on the resource of uh, uh, on the resources that are backing up. You know, in the normal economy, yeah. I'm basically robbing everyone else, and I'm devaluating everyone else, and I'm creating inflation just by having that control. So it's nothing. We, we, we're not going to get those extreme oligarchs that we have in today's system if and when Bitcoin takes over. And even if we would have a handful of them yeah. who would be very powerful, over time, they wouldn't be because Bitcoin is, at the end of the day, not on... Ac- Remember, all money is a symbol of actual resource. So it's always the actual resources that matters. So if we clean up our system and replace it with Bitcoin, sooner or later, you know, okay, I have a a trillion dollars in Bitcoins, but they are worth nothing if I don't apply it in the real world. So I start going out and creating businesses or buying businesses or values of different kinds. And then it gets decentralized over time. And there's always going to be a fight for the actual resources. There's never going to be like, one person, even even in today's system, there will never be like one person because long before one person takes over every resource, the guillotine is going to be re- reinstated <laughs> and people are going to share it on. You understand? <laughs> so so this is why I say it doesn't matter that, there may, especially in the beginning of Bitcoin's history, there may have been a part of a pyramid aspect to it because it's yeah. it's it's a victimless pyramid kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a it's just a reward for those who were early out. Yeah. Well, as you say, there's a big difference between having access to a money printer that allows you to print it after the event compared to someone who got it at the beginning and then held on to it because actually holding on to it over time 
uh, introduces all sorts of other challenges into the system. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, nowadays, if the government wants more money and they can create more digital units out of thin air, you know, that's much more unfair than people who used their intellect and their discipline to um, acquire them early on and then hold on to them without, um, you know, without losing them by staying up to date with the technology, by making sure that they were preserved for their heirs if anything happened to them and they should die Mm. and that Mm. they did all that before, you know, they were bumped off prematurely. There are all sorts of other challenges that earn you the reward further down the line if you're going to be rewarded for that compared to just having access to a money printer today that allows you to print it when you need it. There's a huge difference in that. Um, And yeah, I think that's, it's an excellent point and it's very rarely pointed out, I think, um, because that makes a big difference. Uh, I want to soon to explain why the other cryptos can't be compared to Bitcoin. What is the, this Mark Moskow made me understand it, why they are uh, cheap imitations and almost as bad as fiat. But I want to say, when it comes to uh, Satoshi's first million, and when it comes to Let's say I am a crypto billionaire and then I die Mm -hmm. and with me dies the key. Mm -hmm. Over time, there will be a lot of cryptos that are not used, that are just in the system. I have two questions about that. Number one, is there a a system to release them and put them back into circulation? That's number one. Number two, is there a vulnerability for a CIA or some other similar global powerful group with unlimited resources to hijack or or basically rob those unspent money because otherwise what i see if there's no way to put it back in the system mm-hmm. 500 years from now maybe it's, it's just 10 bitcoins are in circulation the rest are gone somehow mm-hmm. and and i'm also fearing that somehow they can rig and fake it so that even if they can't take over those million but no that they can't do that because there's a history there's a track there's an open code no they can't do that but is there a way for them to crack and hijack the unspent money i don't think there is i mean there's a very famous story here in the uk of a chap who had um a number of bitcoins that were stored on a hard drive and then he threw it away and um (laughs) And he's been petitioning the local council to try and excavate the rubbish dump to try and recapture it. Because literally, once those coins have gone, if you've got no way of preserving them, there is literally no other way to get hold of them. So at the moment, that's our most powerful example. Literally, the only way... You talk about the key, of course, right? Well, or stored on this hard drive. So presumably, I mean, in the early days, I think you could mine them on a laptop and then just store them there. I, I think... Uh, the system of having private keys to secure your wallet was an innovation that kind of came along later. So for him... Oh, wait a minute. So they were physically on his hard drive? Yeah. So the only way for him to access those Bitcoins was to access the hard drive again. But, you know, even if they excavate the rubbish dump, you know, the chances of that hard drive even being operational. But the Mm. thing is, it's worth so much money. He still feels like it's worth a Mm. shot. So he's he's petitioning the local council. He should team up with a billionaire and say you're going to get 50 percent. Oh, they've tried that. They've got they've got someone who's invested, who's prepared to put up the money to to (laughs) search for it. Um, But no can do the. uh, the council are holding firm whether or not they've actually tried evacuating the site themselves or going to it at a later date. Wow. Who knows? But as an illustration of your point, 
there is literally nothing you can do. Um, same if you're holding it yourself, which is one of the reasons why people um, still like to rely on exchanges because it kind of simulates a bank, which is what they're comfortable with. Mm. But yeah, if you um, set up some private keys for a wallet and then anything happens to your wallet, the only way of recovering those funds is if you've got access to your private key. And if you haven't recorded that properly or you don't have access to it, that's it. They're gone. No one can get it back for you. Or if I die or get demented. Well, exactly. You know, so so there are a lot of services that are popping up to try and to try and um, sort this out. So oh, I don't trust any of it. I'm I'm the proverbial uh, old woman with a million in my madras. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. But the, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it allows you to take that stance, and actually, the system relies on the fact that some people will take that stance because that's what keeps it honest. It's like what we were saying in the first part. When Europe operated on a gold standard, one of the things that kept it honest was the fact that occasionally some banks would fail. And so this is what kept the other banks operating to certain standards because their customers would be watching very carefully to see if they were doing anything that might make them fail because that would make them vulnerable to the next bank run. It's like the story Mm. of Wonderful Life when they kind of operated the bank run that used to be a story in america and once the central bank was set up people didn't have to worry about it anymore but of course the central bank gave them other problems that were that were more difficult to really see what was happening and so with so you know one of the problems with a gold standard when everyone had their gold in the bank is that you know there was a huge risk to taking the gold out of the bank and holding it yourself it meant that you know if if it could be stolen from you, if yeah. it's in your house, for example. Mm. Um, and so people wanted those centralized institutions that would keep it safe for them because by holding it there collectively, uh, it could protect it better. Um, and the same is true now, you know, I mean, yes, you can buy gold and silver coins, but you still, you know, if you keep it in your house, you're vulnerable to someone burgling you. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas totally. with Bitcoin, if you have those 12 words and you remember them in your head, Someone can enter your house and try and burgle you. But as long as you can run quicker than they are, they're not going to get it. Because, <laughs> And even if they capture you, they still need to be able to get you to what those words are. That's, yeah, but it's kind of more risky to be a crypto billionaire because all you need to do is torture the guy. Uh, they're going to be kidnapping victims in the future, I think. If you have to, they already are. They're already they're are. Already to be are. fair, there've been yeah. there've been some nasty stories of people being captured and kidnapped, and um, yes, of course, it's all. I guarantee you that CIA in most cases. But uh, if there's only one Bitcoin left, yeah, uh, and this is the only way we are making uh, we are uh, transacting money, yeah, society isn't in any trouble, right? Because it can be unlimited, incrementally partitioned. Well, I mean, it's like it's the world would have an ebb and flow. So, for example, if it got to the stage where there was only one Bitcoin circulating and circulating. Yeah, because you can't you can't reintroduce lost Bitcoins and lost Bitcoins will be eventually the majority given enough time. No, but some people worry about the fact that Satoshi could come along, suddenly open up his wallet and dump a million a million Bitcoin on the market, which would suddenly depress the price. So that kind of... Oh, he's, sti- he's still alive? Well, we don't know. But yeah, in, right, in, right. In, the- in theory, that, that would be possible. So mm. you've also got a situation where, say, all of the Bitcoins have been lost, as far as we knew. So the whole world was operating only one. And then some somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, I've still got 10 and dumps them on the market. It would have a similar kind of effect. Mm. But chances are different people have different points at which 
they will reveal that they still have some some uh, Bitcoin in order to dump it on the market. And although there may be a temporary suppression in the price, eventually the market would kind of equilibrate to what was then available. And ultimately, this is how free markets are meant to work. Yeah. Uh, some supply and demand is meant to fluctuate so that the markets are efficient. And so this is what would happen um, with... But what's the problem with uh, dumping a million new Bitcoins into if he did if he did come out of the woodworks and did that? Well, it's a, would it undermine... It's a supply and demand dynamic. So the thing that will affect the price depends on how in demand they are. So, for example, when the price is getting really high in Bitcoin, it's because lots of people are trying to buy them at the same time. And when the price gets really low, it's because a lot of people are selling them at the same time. Um, and so, so it's a supply and demand dynamic. And so the same thing would happen if um, Satoshi were to come back with his million Bitcoin. You know, there would suddenly be someone with a lot of Bitcoin who was trying to sell them all at the same time, presuming that he did want to sell them all at the same time. Yeah. It may well be that he still has access to the million Bitcoin, but only wants to sell 10, which would have less of an effect. But ultimately... Oh, I think uh, if he's still alive, which I doubt, but if yeah. he was... yeah. The main reason they would get, want to get him would be to have that million. Couldn't you? Couldn't you change the entire? Wouldn't you get over fifty percent if you got his bitcoins? No, because there are twenty-one million in total. So a million. Oh, okay, okay. Unless all of the other twenty million were lost completely, which is yeah. unlikely considering how yeah. um, valuable they are. But again, even if someone did have a disproportionate amount of bitcoin. It wouldn't be in their interest to sell them all at once because right. they'd be devaluing their own asset by selling yeah. them quickly yeah, because that would immediately suppress the price. So, mm -hmm. you know, the system, again, is disincentivizing you from doing that. Yeah, brilliant. And even if there were just one Bitcoin left, what's the problem as long as we can divide it and divide it? Exactly. You know, you, you, you can divide it. I mean, some people have theorized that there may come a stage where they may want to increase increase the limit. But to be honest, in a situation where one Bitcoin could be divided infinitely, I don't see the virtue of that. And I, yeah. I suspect when we got to that stage, that's what people would argue for. Yeah. It's more fair to incrementally divide it than, than to add the, the quantity of the cake or to recirculate dead Bitcoins. Exactly. So... If we theoretically imagine a stage where it was only down to one Bitcoin and you had a choice to upgrade the network to allow more Bitcoins or to change the protocol to divide it by more than 100 million Satoshis, I think the chances are more people would vote to divide the Satoshis than to create more Bitcoin because yeah. that would be least fair. And of course, then anyone who's running a node gets to vote on that protocol. And that's what would win the argument. It's depending on what the circumstances are at the time, because it, it's probably quite difficult for us to imagine right now that problem in the future, because there'll be all sorts of other things to consider we can't even think of at the moment. But based on what we know right now, that would, based on the philosophy of Bitcoin, that would be the fairer way of doing it. So yeah. But I see another, it's not just that private corporations and businesses go into Bitcoin mm -hmm. or that more number of people go into Bitcoin that will help establish Bitcoin and help it take over and protect it from being hunted down by the bandits, the mafia running the world today. There's a third factor and that's states doing it. And there's been a lot of 
anticipation and speculation, who will do it, who will not. And I think the first state who officially went into it was Uruguay or Paraguay, one of these South American, you can clear that up. And then they would say, oh, will China do it? Mm-hmm. Oh, they would have nothing to earn from that, very centralized. Will Russia do it? Oh, very centralized, nothing to earn. Will America do it? I mean, why would they? They are milking the fiat thing. But then again, there's people who believe, no, no, they are dynamic enough to understand this, blah, blah, blah. But have anyone actually, other than this South American state that I know for sure, mm-hmm. I, heard, I heard rumors that Nigeria and India, because so many users use it. So what's the situation right now? Um, well, the South American country you're thinking of is El Salvador. Ah, El Salvador. Um, there you go. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, there was a project called Bitcoin Beach that set up there that, that um, started uh, started encouraging people to use it as a payment network. And uh, anyway, the president, um, Bukele, heard about this and uh, went down to find out what, what it was all about and then uh, got into conversations with people who were organising that. And yeah, so many people are very excited about that project and he's been given a lot of encouragement and investment um, down there. Um, he's also set up, so they they set a law to make it legal, make Bitcoin legal tender. So that didn't mean that their own uh, currency couldn't be used or the dollar couldn't be used, but they allowed Bitcoin to be used as as legal tender. Competition uh, between currencies, great. Yeah. And he also made a law that anyone who was prepared to spend three Bitcoin would be allowed to become a permanent citizen of the country. So that attracted... Yeah. And that attracted a number of Bitcoiners down there. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got friends who were there trying to help the local population uh, set up Bitcoin wallets and um, do everything they can to kind of uh, get it going. Bitcoin is limited at the moment in terms of its development because, um, you know, the main way in which Bitcoin works, the main chain, as we said earlier, is a bit slow. And so um what the what the uh segwit upgrade in 2017 allowed was for uh second layer solutions to be used on top of bitcoin and that's known as the lightning network and this is what will enable payments to be faster and quicker and the way in which that software works is slightly different to well is quite different actually to the way the main chain works um but the advantage but it's not a new crypto like bitcoin cash no it's not a new currency because it's um it's intimately tied to the way bitcoin works so the way in which the way in which um lightning works it's kind of you've got another layer of nodes so you have to you have to run a bitcoin node um yourself first of all to have a lightning node and uh, the lightning node is kind of like a branch off the Bitcoin node. And then once you've got a lightning node, you have to set up channels between other lightning nodes to allow Satoshis to kind of run through the network. And mm. so the, and so it's set up with different contracts to other lightning networks. And so even if, even if you've got a payment, say someone in the UK wanted to pay someone in El Salvador, you might have a direct connection. Or if, even if you didn't have a direct connection, you could find a path through about five different nodes to get the payment to the other, the other mm. end. And so this is way this network is being set up. And so the advantage of that is that it's it works differently, but it makes the payments quicker and it also makes it more private. So is this how some a friend of mine suddenly took uh, we were out having a coffee 
mm-hmm. and we were buying. He took out a credit card or a yeah. payment card or whatever yeah. uh, in metal, actually, and it was bitcoins. I said, "What on earth?" <laughs> I didn't know you could pay with bitcoins. No, no, yeah. Well, it's immediately converted to fiat when I pay. Uh, but I was figuring there has to be like an intermediary, right? It can't be directly for because then he would have to stand there for ten minutes waiting for that payment to. Uh, no, so, lightning lightning works instantly, so that's why it's been set up the way it has. Probably what he was partaking in them. Possibly, but there are also third-party payment solutions that will kind of work as an intermediary while the lightning network's still de- developing. Mm. Um, there are people who will, banks that will offer card payments that enable you to pay with Bitcoin and they wow. will facilitate those payments using Lightning. So it's a little bit complicated, but it's like the two systems are kind of building in parallel. I mean, ultimately, I think the the way the way Bitcoiners eventually see it working is that the system will be so robust, you don't need those third-party intermediaries because right. that's what Bitcoin is designed to eliminate. But in the process of getting there, in order to get people to understand it and start using it, um, there are a number of businesses who've set up these third parties because they're excited about it and they want to see it being used more often. So those businesses do exist. Doesn't mean they have um, long-standing potential, but they're certainly helping to facilitate and ease the process right now. Yeah, mm. right. Okay, so uh, there's two major teams we have to cover. Um, and one of them is, um, maybe that's the easiest segue from what we just discussed. It's how could we envision that a society could be run with Bitcoin as its currency? Because Robert Bonomo argued to me when we discussed this that um, no matter how you want to run a society, whether you want socialism, social democracy, or old school capitalism, or or even corporatism, or fascism, you know, whatever system you want to run, some of these things won't be possible with Bitcoin. And I think what most states have in common is, the, of course, is the ability to print money, although many yield that power when they join something like the euro or the dollar. Yeah. But not just that, it's also the ability to tax. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the ability to tax, they, of course, want the ability to control. They want to see how much income you have. Yeah. And they also need, I argued to him yeah. that this wasn't a problem, but he said they also need uh, sources of uh, income so they can finance whatever ventures the state are doing. But I said, look, that's not a problem because it's the resources at the end of the day that determines that. So then you just have to make sure that the state has certain resources, like in our country. Thank God we had so much uh, fraternity thinking. That's not the real world, but like um, identification that... When certain corporatist powers tried to, when we discovered oil, Mm -hmm. they wanted that to be privatized and given to Americans. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it was the social democrats that fought it. And they said, no, let's nationalize it because it belongs to all of us. It's like our collective inheritance. It shouldn't be exploited and owned by, certainly not foreigners, but like a a Mm -hmm. particular person. So they gave uh, commissions to... Uh, drill and stuff like that but at the end of the day the oil belonged to and in the long run so one fraction wanted a short payout Mm -hmm. huge short payout Mm -hmm. and then in the long run losing everything Mm -hmm. the other faction which won Mm -hmm. unlike many other countries uh, said no we rather have wait for the long 
term payment and uh, profit and that's what they did and so we're mm-hmm. uh, like a middle eastern gulf state right now economically mm-hmm. so that's resources so you just need to agree is a certain resources that the state should have if there's certain tasks the state should do yeah then there should also be certain resources right so this is something we can discuss when we have yeah. our freedoms back yeah. all i'm wondering is what will bitcoin allow yeah. In terms of its nature, and what will it disallow yeah. for a government to run, run basically just on Bitcoin? Yeah. Well, I think these these are exceptionally interesting topics, and I rarely see them discussed. And uh, I think they are they are very important issues. I think what it's important to remember is that our, our system of government right now is has evolved as a result of how the money works, not the other way around. Um, so, for example, you know, capitalism was the way in which the world kind of ran uh, in the 1800s when we ran on a gold standard. And it was only as the fiat system allowed the introduction of welfare services and there was a political faction that was allowed to argue for that that money to be used for welfare services that we kind of had this balance between capitalism and um, socialism. And so, you know, capitalism, well... You know, the conservatives kind of argue for free markets based on how things used to be. But of course, they're pseudo free markets because you're not, you know, to facilitate a free market, you need a sound currency. And we haven't got that. Um, And so anything they propose is very much a mimic of that. Um, And so recipe for rigging. Well, exactly. And so they both kind of do it. And and the longer the longer these governments exist, you, you, you realize more how they converge towards the middle. It's like the American midterms, you know, there was like a marginal <laughs> yeah. difference between the two parties. Allowed options, yeah. Exactly. And it's the same It's the same in England, you know. I mean, there's a saying that uh, it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government will always get in. And it's about the fact that, you know, you can have this rotation of politicians, but ultimately it's the civil servants that work behind the scenes that kind of keep the whole system running. Um, Yeah, but I think think England would be better off and much more interesting and have an actual alternative if you saw, for example, uh, Nigel Farage and George Galloway as two different uh, <laughs> candidates for to take yeah. over, right? Because that's actual differences. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, but yeah, it would be interesting. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> so instead, you have this bleak imitation of the Tories and the Labours, which are all hijacked. Yeah. So ultimately, they're both operating in a system where we've got a centralized currency, and ultimately, they're at the mercy of of the bankers who are yeah. managing that behind the scenes. Yeah. So the the difference Bitcoin makes is because it's a decentralized currency, it completely disrupts the way in which governments work altogether. And so if we go back to the story I told you about the starfish and the spider, and you've got centralized communities and decentralized communities, you know, the 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 outcome of having a purely decentralized currency is it's going to lead to decentralized communities. So I don't think in the future it's oh, going fantastic. To, yeah, I don't think it's going to be the case that you're going to have governments anymore because without the ability to control the money, they're not going to have that level of control. Yeah, but what about resources? I mean, uh, yeah, so the, the, yeah, so obviously you're going to have communities that will gravitate to these resources. But again, the way in which resources works 
will be very different. So one of the one of the biggest debates in the Bitcoin community right now is about the the need for power in order to fund Bitcoin mining. And of course, we've got this huge disruption at the moment in in Europe in terms of supply of energy, which is probably having um, an, an impact on the whole debate. And it's their current target um, in order to discredit the whole thing. Mm. But the reality of the situation is that the more you have competition for something, the more there's an incentive to create more efficient ways of doing it. Um, And so this is the effect that we're already seeing in Bitcoin. You know, you've got people talking about um, you know, the other ways in which uh the this energy can be harvested. Now if anyone one of the impacts of a Bitcoin miner is they're very noisy um, and also they produce a lot of heat. So people are discussing the fact that you could use that heat to distill water, for example, and, you know, distilling that water can uh, contribute to carbon harvesting from the air, which would help to, you know, reduce the CO2 levels. Um, You know, no one's pointed out yet that we actually need CO2 in the air in order to breathe, but, you know, I'm just waiting for the moment (laughs) that that pen drops. Um, Notwithstanding, it's the food for the actual air producers the trees but they go on exactly you know the whole other can of worms but the Mm. point is you know people are already dedicating their brain cells to kind of solving this problem it's just like someone raised an issue and all of a sudden you've got all of these people discussing it from other perspectives and so you've got you've got places in china for example when they were doing bitcoin mining where you'd have power plants that were producing excess energy for a while and so someone actually suggested to them that you know rather than just allow the ex- excess energy to be unused why not plug in a bitcoin miner and you know get that use that energy um to you know to to mine some bitcoin and you know mm. so this this was a fantastic idea is this a, is this why they were speculating that china would embrace bitcoin um well the thing is china had China's very centralized and so a lot of their yeah but so, so is Russia but I heard Russia has accepted bitcoins now um I think they're talking about legalizing cryptocurrencies but I'm not I'm not um you know okay. intimately intimately aware of what they're doing but I think in China because it's a communist country a lot of their uh power supplies were centralized and so you know, you get a lot of inefficiencies in yeah. uh, centralized systems. And so someone had suggested that they hooked up these miners to some of these power plants. And so that's one of the reasons why why uh, Bitcoin mining did take off quite early in China. But then, of course, the Chinese government came in and uh, banned Bitcoin mining, but all the miners just packed up and moved to America. So, um, <laughs> you know, so that's why most of the miners are there now. So, again, you know, it's an example of... Um, the limited power governments have because governments change their mind about things all the time. And so unless you've got all the governments in the world banning mining, there'll be some corner of the world that allows it or sees the potential for it. And so ultimately any government that bans it is kind of shooting themselves in their own foot in the foot. And um, as they kind of realize that they again, start to realize, you know, how powerless they are. But can't we integrate some semblance of our government with Bitcoin as the currency? Well, I think a lot depends on how attached you are to the idea of government in itself. I mean, I think at the moment, a lot of people... I I can't see any uh, that uh, stuff like a military for defence is going away. Well... For example. 
part of the problem is for all of our lives, we've only known government. So mm. it's hard for us to imagine a world that would work without government. But again, yeah, but but look, you're talking to an old anarchist, so you don't have to sell me on this idea. But the problem yeah. is 99% of the population, 999 Mm-hmm. even if they understood everything, are not ready to let go of the government. So any Bitcoin activist should do themselves and us the favor of envisioning at least an intermediary yeah. Yeah. function I agree. so that people actually aren't scared off from the entire yeah. thing. Yeah, I agree. And this isn't the, the software still developing. This isn't going to happen straight away overnight. But what will happen is that gradually over time, their their power will wane. So, for example, the 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 issue you just mentioned about the military, the only re- the only reason militaries are able to be so powerful is because of the fiat currency. You know, that's mm. what enabled the First World War in the first place. I mean, that's not to say there weren't battles before the First World War, but they were very limited based on and more local, yeah, and more local depending on what could be funded. It was it was this creation of fiat currency that. And it was a fight over resources. Today, there's not like... And also for bad rates. There's no unknown resources to compete for. All resources are kind of accounted for. Unless unless there's an innovation in... in, uh, I'm talking physical resources. Of course, there's always creativity and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, with resources, I remember having this discussion a long time ago with my uncle where he was arguing that, you know, the value of money was based on the resources of the country. And I didn't say it to him at the time, but I thought about it afterwards. And I kind of thought, well, if the wealth of the country was purely based on their resources, then how come Africa's so poor? Yeah, It's not as simple as that. The way in which no. the the rules are set up, and actually there's um, an amazing interview, well, an amazing article actually written by a chap called Alex Gladstein um, that's available on Twitter. And that, you know, if you search on YouTube for his name, he, he goes into great detail about... Um, you know, how the organizations of the central banks, you know, keep these third world countries constantly impoverished by issuing them with loans that they can't pay. And then even when they're going to default on the debt, they don't write off the debt. They just issue a new loan. And so even- yeah, and every loan has strings attached for ideology. You have to do stuff like this. You have to impose austerity. You have to give away your resources for a fraction of the worth to us, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. It's just a brutish China. Uh, what do you call it? Belts and Roads Initiative yeah, or something. They are doing it much more cleverly and much more capitalistically. <laughs> America is doing it like the Nazi way, right? Just brute power. And, and China is doing it the capitalistic way. I know. I, I said to an accountant recently, I said, don't be fooled by the fact that there are no capitalists in China. Because if you've lived under a regime of communism, you understand capitalism very well because it's the complete opposite. Plus, today's China is capitalistic yeah. uh, to yeah, a large it's extent. It's state capitalism. But let's move on. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so the, the point about resources is the fact that you can be the richest country in the world in terms of resources, but if you don't know how to manage them well or someone is manipulating you through a system yeah. of finance that you that can't be that isn't fairly set up it doesn't really you can have all the resources <laughs> in the world and you're still going to be fooled out of it i just realized you know who's utterly screwed who the most evil regime in the world saudi arabia that's the idea <laughs> exactly <laughs> they're exactly. sitting back there they can't drink that oil <laughs> yeah no they can't they have nothing anymore 
No, although they're very interested in cryptocurrencies, actually. I mean, Dubai is rapidly yeah. becoming the crypto capital of the world because a lot of crypto investors are right. gravitating there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, But it swings and roundabouts. I mean, you know, Dubai, Saudi Arabia realizes that they need to diversify and so they're looking at other options and so mm. yeah cryptocurrencies are are on the horizon but i remember in 2017 no 2018 when the price of bitcoin reached a low and because i was involved in the crypto community i knew one of the um trading desks and uh, he sent out a message to one of our groups saying that there was someone in Saudi Arabia who wanted to sell a whole load of Bitcoin. So, you know, they might be rich, but they can also be stupid. Who sells a bunch mm. of Bitcoin right when the price is at a low? I mean, yeah. the price didn't go much lower, but clearly they were so disillusioned by how low the price had gone. They kind of sold their stack right, right at the worst point. So they never understood it to begin with. Yeah, exactly. for them, it was just a hype they were. yeah, Exactly. So people have kind of been cultivated into the wrong way of thinking. And so they will make the wrong decisions at the wrong time. And again, so this is one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so interesting. You can't rely on the way in which the world has worked to make predictions about the future. You need to be much more um, savvy about how this actually works and much more imaginative how the world could evolve in order to make the correct decisions. You know, you don't buy a load of it because someone tells you the price is going to the moon and then wait until the price is lowest and then suddenly sell all you've got because you've become completely <laughs> disillusioned. I mean, that's the kind of thing people do when they're used to easy money, yeah. easy come, easy go. It's just like, well, this isn't going anywhere. I'll let go of it now. But mm. unless they're super wealthy, the chances of recapturing the number that they had, they might learn their lesson, but they'll never have what they had before. Yeah, there's an old saying about a fool being parted from his money. Exactly. But uh, at the end of the day, that means some of their power, yeah. meaning money, are coming over to the rest of us. So that's Absolutely. good that these people exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was, it's like he understood economics, he understood computer programming, he also understood human psychology. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just brilliant. converging in. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that all these aspects, maybe some of it is incidental. I don't know. But yeah. Um, yeah. if you should design, yeah. if, if the divine powers should design an economy system that would work optimally yeah. for the human race. Yeah without all the pain and suffering that's come with all the models we've experimented with this would be it yeah absolutely and as you're saying that um it comes to there's a really funny meme that goes around in the bitcoin world where someone's talking to god and they say um so how's you know now that i've given them bitcoin how's it going and uh, the response is oh they're creating shit coins out of it <laughs> shit coins yeah <laughs> you know what that's the segue yeah. Because we have to discuss these so-called, you know, crypto. Yeah. Um, why is Bitcoin and the derivatives thereof, why are those currencies different from all the others that we hear about all the time? Like uh, FTX, because FTX was a uh, uh, currency, right? Well, FTX was the exchange and they had a token called FTT token. That's what the, the yeah, token yeah. is the word. Yeah. yeah. FTT. Okay. So again, a lot of people who manage their finances from day to day are out of the loop in terms of how the wider financial system works. So obviously, in the wider financial system works, there are investments you can make like shares, um, you know, to invest in the stock market. And obviously, everyone knows the stock market goes up and down. Obviously, in the 1920s, you know, people were in a frenzy buying these stocks. And then when the whole stock market crashed, 
that's what precipitated the Great Depression. And so, you know, cryptocurrency has kind of created this new form of money that was started by Bitcoin. Obviously, people have different ideas and different philosophies how money should work. And so this is what's created, as we've discussed earlier, some of these uh, child coins of Bitcoin that are based on the original Bitcoin software. But there are others that have been created somewhat differently. So, for example, um, Ethereum is the other one that that people are quite. Familiar. Yeah. Why are they saying that Bitcoin is gold and Ethereum is silver? As far as I understand, Ethereum is just as centralized as anything else. Yeah. I've not heard that. I mean, in in the Bitcoin world, they often consider Litecoin as silver because that was kind okay. of like a, a, a derivative of Bitcoin. But the 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 analogy I use is that Bitcoin's like gold and Ethereum's like the fiat currency. So if right. you think of fiat currencies that are kind of managed using laws um, and the rules that government organize, Ethereum's kind of the same way. It, it was set up in such a way to kind of manage smart contracts. So... The idea behind Bitcoin that you can kind of have a decentralized money, it's like having a decentralized accountant. Whereas, you know, if you're going to run a business, often you'll need an accountant and a lawyer. So if Bitcoin's the decentralized accountant, Ethereum's like the decentralized lawyer. <laughs> so the idea is that you could have you could set up contracts with different entities and even objects in order to transfer value. So rather than relying on someone like a lawyer, for example, to help you facilitate a house purchase, you'd have all the rules programmed into something like Ethereum and you just need to exchange that token and, and it would it would um, secure the house purchase. So, you know, the higher level thinking um, of clearly there are issues in terms of um you know, implementation of something like that. But that was the higher level thinking when it came to Ethereum. And so um, so Ethereum ended up issuing all sorts of different tokens on that were connected to their network that were known as ERC-20 tokens. And a lot of these tokens kind of acted like a, a share in a company. Um, and so mm. you had a number of you had a number of businesses that were issuing these ERC twenty tokens. So there were companies, for example, that wanted to set up um, their own estate agency to buy and sell property, and so they created a token that would facilitate these property transactions. Um, you've also got another one. Um, where one of the biggest businesses in the financial world are providing loans to businesses in order to provide them with cash flow, because often they'll have to supply the goods before their invoice is settled. And so there's a there's a huge business and actually providing those loans on a temporary basis for businesses. So the idea was you could use a token to kind of facilitate that. So this was where the explosion of altcoins kind of um, evolved in 2017. But the problem with a lot of these the problem with a lot of these um, tokens was that they would issue them, they'd collect all the money up front, and then a lot of them wouldn't continue with their projects because it was kind of like, I've got all the money now, What, mm. what what's the reward? Normally... Pyramid. Well, yeah, much more so because normally... You know, the idea is you build a business and then you float it on the stock market and you've already established its value before people then invest to try and make it bigger. Mm. Whereas a lot of these businesses came out of nowhere, issued a token. And because there was such a frenzy, there were people investing in, in them left, right and center. And then, you know, what would happen is the the token would kind of skyrocket initially and then gradually after a few months you know, the the work on the project would just completely die down and the token would go to zero. 
Um, and so this is what happened in 20, 2017. And, and yeah, this is this is why everybody, when they hear NFT, they think of like scam and, you know, serious. Well, NFT is something sorry. different. Oh, OK. NFTs are something different. So. So 2017 was like the ICO craze. And so ICO stands for initial coin offering. Mm -hmm. So what happens is these businesses were basically they were issuing their own white papers um, and saying that this is our idea for a business. And everyone kind of go, oh, that's a good idea. Here, have some of my Bitcoin. Because yeah. the other thing was because Bitcoin was elevating in price, you know, a lot of people who'd invested in it early were just kind of like, oh, another opportunity to make money. And so yeah. everyone yeah. was investing in these projects left, right and center. Mm. Um, and some of them took off and did well. And so some people, as soon as the price skyrocketed, they then sold their tokens and, and um, you know, got out. And so this was the whole speculative bubble of the ICOs in 2017. It's interesting that uh, this kind of flushes out the most greedy of the well, uh, and, and stupid, Absolutely. greedy, stupid, wealthy people. Absolutely. Um, because the thing is, a lot of people who invest in Bitcoin early, not all of them really fully understand the economic implications. And so they were blindsided by by the fact that it went up so quickly. And mm. it's like they say about lottery winners. A lot of lottery winners are just completely yeah. unprepared to have suddenly have a lot of money. They don't know how to handle it. Their life gets ruined after they win the lottery. They do. Often. Yeah. Because if you haven't been educated in how to handle that, it can actually be incredibly stressful. Mm. Um, and so... So, you know, it's very easy for people to make bad decisions in that kind of situation and end up right back at square one. Mm. So that was the thing about the ICO. Some of those tokens still exist, but their value is a lot lower than what they were. Some of the some of the projects are still operating and are fulfilling and are following through on their promises. Um, but a lot of them have kind of failed. And also, um, you know, there were a number of financial people at the time who pointed out that a lot of these were essentially unregistered securities, which is illegal um, in America. And so, you know, that put a kibosh on the whole thing. But NFTs are different. So NFTs are non-fungible tokens. So the idea behind non-fungible tokens is it's like you attach a piece of software to um, a physical object. And this is what... Uh, or a digital object. Yeah. And this is what verifies their authenticity. So, the, of course, the idea is that in the uh, physical world, you know, there's huge money to be made in the art world from um right. uh, buying and selling art now there are also so, so it's a way to to make a fixed price on art not so much that there are reasons i think why the art world okay it's a way to validate art authenticate it yes authenticate it so there mm. are reasons why um the art world is as wealthy as it is and it's probably partly to and also the property market and it's partly to do with the fact that you know, the currencies are losing value. And so people are looking for physical objects. It's like gold. To store their, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also it's more unique than gold, especially if it's a particularly uh, valuable piece of art. But mm. often the property market and the art market and the wine market, these are ways in which the wealthy try and store their assets, often because there are tax advantages and also because, um, you know, with currency losing its value, a unique piece of art will hold its value in the future. So, you know, NFTs were kind of set up to mirror the art world without recognizing that the art world is as valuable as it is because we don't have a decentralized currency. Mm. And so by kind of attaching a piece of software to these digital pieces of art, yes, it allows them to be traded and allows them to verify that they're unique, which probably has a certain value 
for a niche market. Um, but I think if they're trying to mimic the art world, they've kind of missed the point in terms of why the art world is valuable, that Bitcoin kind of completely disrupts, yeah. which means that ultimately I think the value of NFTs are limited longer term, which some people in the crypto community may well shoot me for. But ultimately, <laughs> that's the way I see it. I mean, I think there'll always be a niche market for them. But again, the NFT market in the last couple of years was like this. It's like this bubble of ideas that kind of takes off as people who've got more money than they know what to do with, especially. Yeah, the there's a world. famous example of this wealthy Saudi prince who I forgot the details, but he got really crushed on the NFT. Yeah. He sold it for what was it? I mean, a fraction of the price he paid. Yeah. Again, going back to you pointing out that these morons, they buy on top and they sell on low. Well, yeah, if you've got more money than sense, you know, you've exactly. been able to get you've been able to buy your way out of bad decisions. But yeah. that world is changing. As it should. Um, yep. And I think these are the lessons. Yep. These lessons are what people are, are, are learning. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, very it's uh, rewarding now to understand stuff yep. will reward you, whether you're poor or, or rich. And it will also reward uh, less greed, more idealism. But um, no, as I see it, I, I just see all these other cryptos as just like when you digitalize fiat, yeah. let's say the krona, the Norwegian krona, yeah. you digitalize it, bam, yeah. that's it. Only here's mine. It's not issued from the state of Norway. It's it's, it's issued from Al Borealis. Yeah. Come on, who wants to buy in on this scheme? And I have the full control. Yeah. I own the computer, you know, back to Stalin. Yeah, yeah. I uh, can do whatever I want. And I don't see, I mean, this is probably even worse than fiat, because in, at least in fiat, yeah. if the state won't outright try to scheme everybody and run them bankrupt, <laughs> because then the guillotine comes back, right? So they have to try yeah, to yeah. make the system work. But this yeah. is a quick cash scheme anyone can do. Yeah. Well, they can do, but you have to. You agree? Well, it's possible, but what you have to recognize is, you know, what gives things its value. I mean, it's it's a really interesting intellectual discussion because this whole subject of money has almost been about what the 10th, 20th century has been about. I mean, unless yeah. you work in the financial industry, you might not be as familiar with it. But every single discussion they had, like Bretton Woods after the Second World War, after creating the Federal Reserve in 2013, coming off the gold standard during the First World War, Richard Nixon taking America off the gold standard in 1971. You know, these were huge, huge issues at the time for people who were familiar with those industries. And of course, each of those decisions had a huge impact on people's lives on the ground, but very rarely could they connect what was happening in their lives to what was happening, you know, way above them with situations that they they were unable to unable to understand. And so it's like as we unwind that and we've been given a new innovation in order to, you know, ex experiment with new ideas, um, you know, it's like a lot of these things have to be unlearnt or relearnt. Um, and a lot will depend on the degree to which you've been forced to understand it. Yeah. Um, to where you'll benefit from it. Because one of the things I find most interesting, having been involved in Bitcoin since 2016, I've been to a lot of conferences, a lot of my a lot of my friends now I've met through my Bitcoin networks. Mm -hmm. And what I often find is that it's those who've had some kind of trauma in their lives mm -hmm. that understand it first. Mm -hmm. So in 2016, when I learned about it and I was trying to tell, I was excited. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I was trying to tell people I knew about it. 
the first person who believed me and actually bought some herself was someone who'd been in a similar situation where she tried to run her own business. Um, Unfortunately, in her situation, she ended up getting into so much debt, eventually they had to declare bankruptcy and they lost their house. And even though even though they didn't have much money, when I told her about it, she got it straight away Mm. because she'd had to grapple with these issues of finance. And so in the process of, you know, losing her business and losing their house, that learning, although it was very painful, it Mm. meant that she was the most open to it when I showed her something new, which other people weren't at all interested in. Makes total sense that the spoiled and lazy people they they still keep their illusions. They they haven't suffered, so they don't know. Yeah. They have blind trust. It's a religion, but it's it's paradigm. So they have a blind trust in what's going on. This explains also why poor countries, yeah. people there are open for it. Yeah. And those people who, you know, conspiracy coins, yeah. as they will call. Yeah. It's because we know yeah. something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Yeah. So we have an incentive to understand this and get it. Yeah. And it's almost like that suffering kind of opens up, opens up your mind because it makes you think, well, why is it like this? Yeah. You find yourself in a situation where you never want to be in that situation again. I mean, it was the same with me. I mean, I I started a new business in December 2017 and, you know, I, I ran through my savings fairly rapidly. I think it was only a matter of time before things turned around. But of course, just as I was getting to the end of my savings, the financial crisis hit. And so that was right. the point in, at which in the past I'd have gone to the bank to ask for some more money. But of course, in September 2008, no bank on the planet was lending money to anyone. It didn't matter who you were. <laughs> no. And so it was in the no. process of kind of thinking, well, why why was that? Because that created a great deal of stress in my life. And okay, I was fortunate enough to kind of come through it. But afterwards, I was like, I never want to be in this situation again. And of course, so that offers a powerful motivation to kind of figure out, you know, well, why did this happen? You know, what do I need to do to kind of avoid being in in the future? And so that's the thing that makes you do the work that makes you understand. Um, And so, you know, in that respect, your suffering becomes your greatest blessing because it kind of motivates you to learn to see it differently. And then you're in a position to teach others in a very powerful way because it's affected you very tangibly. Um, And that then comes across when you communicate it because you understand it well, because you've lived it. And, and so you can relate to other people's struggles and help them understand it too. Yeah, absolutely. Now uh, I um, uh, see Bitcoin as a surplus economy rather than a debt based economy. That is if, Two things happen. One, it takes over as the main currency. And two, uh, it forces a redistribution of resources. But I, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the economists. He operates in your country, but I think he's originally German, called Richard Werner. Are you aware of him? Yes, I've been to conferences where he's been a speaker. Excellent. I love that guy. And he, he actually was the one who introduced the term quantitative easing. And he had some lectures, Robert Bonomi pointed me to it, I immediately got it. He explained how the central banks actually are a poison, a toxin Mm -hmm. to economy and and, Mm -hmm. uh, for a system to work. 
especially central banks, but also normal banks. He said that, look, he's not just like most of these spin doctors, talking heads, opinionists, mm-hmm. uh, pundits. He's actually doing science. Mm-hmm. Because when he talks about these things, it's based on research, not just his research, but the teams of university people who... So we have something as rare as scientific economy. You know, most economy is magic and voodoo and uh, religion. So scientific, and he proves with uh, the... substantiates it with evidence that what makes healthy spikes what what how should i put this in my layman terms when when health comes back into the economy it's always from community banks mm-hmm. it's always from these decentralized and smaller banks and he used for example china no was it china he used several examples germany and they are struggling because they are being screwed over by the big yep. banks all the time yep. but is there a way that they could function together with bitcoin well, the role of the banks, the way the the banks originally started was, you know, they kind of were a, a centralized place where people could store their gold because they didn't have the ability to protect it themselves. And I think going back to your point earlier about, you know, there being a transition between what people understand now and, and the future, I think a lot of these local communities banks because yeah i mean he, he talks about the private banks in germany i think germany has the greatest density of private banks i think any anywhere in europe um and they seem to they seem to help um quite a lot here in norway we have many many local banks yeah like community banks and we ha- even have yeah you know how uh, you know how pedagogics for example you have the steiner schools the waldorf schools or montessori based on alternative oh, philosophy yeah. right yeah we yeah. have the same with banking for example, yeah. we have non-commercial banks. We have banks who use the money to invest yeah. in uh, the community, yeah. uh, ecological banks, all that stuff. So so we're in the yeah. same boat as Germany. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of transition from where we are now to where we're going, I think those local banks have a powerful part to play. I mean, even some of the exchanges, even though the collapse of FTX has uh, tarred crypto with a very scammy um, and poor reputation, you know, often these tragedies uh, tend to scar a whole industry with the same brush. But in a situation where people are uncomfortable about self-custody, some of these exchanges um, create a, a useful, a useful bridge between the old world and the new world. You know, people, if they trust that particular organization, uh, it, it provides them with somewhere safe that, you know, they can nominate um, a second person who has access to their account, for example, when they die. Um, and it doesn't mean that you would store all your assets there. It may well be that, you know, you have some in self-custody and you might trust some of your holdings with this centralized organization because heaven forbid something should happen to you before you've managed to figure out how to pass your private keys onto your heirs. Mm. At least your heirs might be able to access what's on the centralized platform, even if they can't access what you've got in your own custody. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think as the, it's not going to be a sudden change. I think as the world gradually adapts to this new way of doing things, um, you know, there are going to be these businesses that have a very valuable role to play. And that doesn't mean that they'll exist forever. Um, but I think in the in the short term, um, they, they do have a role and, um, and uh, I think that's a very, a very important one. 
Yeah, I, I see another function happening out of necessity if we go this way and I pray to God we do, is that insurance companies and banks will kind of merge as they already do under fiat because people will always have a need for security. Yeah. And uh, with insurance, it's a little bit different because there you pay into you pay into like a collective fund, which you totally can do if it's still bitcoins, right? Yeah. And yeah. then that company, and if you if you have rules, basic rules and regulation against fraud and lawlessness, yeah. the owner of that company can't just take the crypto and 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 run away. They know his identity at least. So yeah. uh, even if the state cannot directly access crypto accounts to see what's going on, whether it is to tax us or to see what's going on in our bank accounts or whatever. Yeah, at least we can pay into these uh, crypto accounts. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin accounts, where which is like a collective account run by some company, mm -hmm. and being held in check by laws, basic laws against fraud, etc. And then you can totally have still stuff like pension funds. Uh, you can have stuff like um, insurance. Uh, maybe banking. I'm not sure banking because banking seems to be based on debt and this doesn't fit with debt. But I'll tell you, for example, the social security in America, Yeah. that system, Yeah. is nothing else, else than a state-run insurance yeah. system. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think the ultimate point is that a lot of these things, these systems will need to be redesigned. And I can give you an example. I've heard of... Um, a system in the states, so of course, you know, all healthcare is uh, privately run and uh, yeah. often funded through insurance um, in the states, and is very expensive and a significant. Concern. It's a scam upon a scam upon a scam. Yeah. yeah, a significant concern for the American population. But there was one podcast I listened to where someone was talking about this cooperative they'd set up with a group of people. So the idea was yeah. that um, this group of people got together and basically. If someone had a medical problem, if they'd been paying into this scheme, they would they would share with the group, you know, what the problem was. And the other members of the group would agree to donate mm -hmm. to help this person's uh, particular medical problem. And uh, and so this was a way this was a way in which um, this was being organized through a community through donations. Um, and so um you know, I, I, I don't know intimately. It was just one interview that I listened to, but I thought, well, that's interesting. It, yeah. it sets up a way for these sorts of systems to work completely differently to what, the way in which they've been set up in the past. And it also illustrates that, you know, we don't actually need governments for these things. You know, no. human beings are perfectly capable of looking after each other. And in yeah. fact, that's the way it used to be yeah. before governments came along in or, or, or before they became too strong exactly. because most of these systems you're talking about did exist the, the reason we still have co-ops in norway yeah. is because there are remnants of a time before the huge centralized yeah. it goes back a hundred years to labor movements and other kinds of movements christian movements and there will always be charities yeah. there will always be uh, the sisters of mercy yeah there will always be cooperatives yeah and i don't see how they are threatened just because we're cleaning up the scammy aspects of our economy i think they would thrive 
I yeah, I think they'll become stronger because yeah. part of the problem is a lot of these community efforts are undermined by the fact that there's always going to be more powerful funding from the government. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that has been part of the problem in the past, because even though local communities might be doing great things, if they're short of funding or if for some reason the government disagrees with what they're doing, they can completely undermine it by funding a completely different project. Yeah. And so this has an influence as well. You know, the fact that governments have this much power has all sorts of negative effects that aren't necessarily obvious unless you've been involved behind the scenes in what has actually been the implications. And, and I have to say to Scandinavian brethren, and you know that the government isn't working for your benefit yeah. and to the degree it still does, yeah. is there's nothing in our governments that will stop it from uh, being hijacked by, because most governments in the world today are run by the power behind the scenes. No, no talk about yeah. the Vatican or Illuminati or the Freemasons or the Jews or whatever, although <laughs> those aspects can also have a, a say, but I'm talking about the actual structure of a system where it's the huge corporations and uh, oligarchs who basically buys off and a, a small government uh, worker, a bureaucrat, has no power. I mean, uh, put CIA on him and he's done, right? So uh, there's no way these huge systems, they are not safe. Centralization has always been a detriment in all aspects of humanity since the dawn of mankind. But people still believe somehow that there's advantages to centralization. Yeah. And also it's the perverse incentives that they set up. So an example I can give you from healthcare, you know, when I was running my own dental business, you know, one of the things that are mandated, you know, first of all, you have to have a license to operate as a dentist in order to have a license. You've, you've got to, you know, go through their five year degree course. Yeah. But even once you've done all of that, I mean, I set up my dental business and I wanted it to operate completely privately with no government influence whatsoever. But because the body that I had my license with mandated that every year dentists have to go through um, emergency training, you know, what to do in a medical emergency, they said we had to do that. And so I had to find, even though I was operating um, a private business, I had to find somewhere that would provide that training. Now, if I had any element of NHS contract in my business, that training would have been funded for me. But because I didn't have any kind of government contract, I had to pay for it for myself. And even though mm. I only had a little business, that was going to cost me a thousand pounds every year, mm. which was money that could have easily gone towards something else. And so these rules that might be set up for what they believe are good reasons it can have a detrimental effect elsewhere because ultimately the effect this has what it made was it made me less competitive it was diverting my resources um to something that anyone who had a government contract didn't have to fund and so you know that automatically affected how competitive i could be in the market and of course you know these are the things that influence whether or not these independent businesses can exist at all and i'm sure there are many other types of businesses who could give you similar examples and so yeah. this is how a lot of these big corporations survive because they have unfair advantages compared to the smaller community projects and so mm. ultimately those smaller community projects they die of starvation yeah, absolutely. Go to, again, just look at how the market is rigged uh, in itself, the, the stock market and stuff. Watch yeah. uh, Mr. Corbett, his yeah. uh, excellent documentary. I'm going to, like I said, find the title and read it in the post commentary. And we're winding down now and we're going to go over to your stuff. But I want a prediction from you. 
<laughs> based upon, <laughs> as always fun, isn't it? Based upon uh, how we see, you, you, we see the development it has been. Mm-hmm. How many zeros? Let's say you have, uh, let's say you have Bitcoin for, uh, let's say a Bitcoin for ten thousand dollars. So, or let's say you have Bitcoin for thousand dollars. That's easier today. Mm-hmm. How many zeros do you envision if this is allowed to unfold naturally? that you can put behind it, let's say, 10 years from now? And is there any calculation of how many zeros behind it in increased value it's possible to get? Like, let's say all people in the world go over to this, and this is the only currency? Yeah. Uh, is there any approximations of what we're then talking about? Uh, because this is important incentive to those who either don't get it, but are motivated yep. by greed, yeah, or maybe don't have that much means yeah. and needs to really have an extra incentive. It's not always activism and idealism is enough. Yeah. Well, um, you ask an important question. I don't think there's a straightforward answer because there are a number of interesting variables there. The number of zeros will ultimately depend on how many zeros um, will ultimately depends on how much fiat currency is created. So, for example, if um, you know gov- the central banks continue with their policies of quantitative easing, and we go into something like hyperinflation, the zeros could be unlimited. It's like the price gold in oh, yeah. Weimar Germany, Good and point. it kind of became unbelievable. By the same token, you know, at, the mo- at the moment, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates because they're aware that this idea of too much money printing is kind of really entering the collective consciousness. And so they seem to be really trying to gain some control back over the fiat system. Um, and so, of course, by doing that and by doing quantitative tightening, you're taking more money out of the system. So, you know, the ultimate answer is, you know, the, there's, again, the, this meme in the Bitcoin world, it's like, uh, 21 million divided by infinity so it all depends <laughs> it all depends on what there is because the same thing goes for the population you know obviously in um in the alternate alternative theory world there's a lot of debate about whether or not there's a depopulation agenda yeah. and of course a lot of the elites talk about depopulation and you know say for example there is some kind of event that wipes out a good proportion of the population well then 21 million divided by everything is actually a much smaller number because there are mm. far fewer people on the planet mm. so i think in terms of in terms of um you know number of zeros i think it really depends it could be anything from a million to 10 trillion all depending on you know what the resources you're dividing it by are actually there in the future and i think at the moment those are really unknown quantities but those are the important variables i think okay let me put it like this then mm-hmm. if you had a thousand dollars worth of bitcoin in 2016 when you joined Mm-hmm. How much would that be worth today? Um, okay. Just lying there, resting. Okay, so um, a thousand pounds in 2016 would have bought you two bitcoins, and two bitcoins at the moment are thirty-four thousand dollars. So a thousand. No, that, that's too complicated. Uh, how much uh, you, you started with pounds? Um, oh, sorry. A thousand dollars then. So, so a thousand dollars would have bought you two bitcoins in 2016, and. Um, yeah, two Bitcoin are currently worth $34,000. $34,000. So you started from 1000 to so So you, you earned $33,000. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Of course, it's not exactly the same because prices are different and stuff too, but it still is a huge profit. And as long as, like you argue, it's going to be a transition period, yeah, then you can continue to add those zeros. Um, yeah, I mean... But I, I, I can't see why if the fiat system crumbles, mm -hmm. why would we suffer? Because gold didn't... Gold just became more valuable when fiat broke down, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so wouldn't the same be true for Bitcoin? Well, you have to remember that um, you know the last time we had any kind of severe hyperinflation, it was in Weimar Germany just before the Second World War, and of course, in a situation where people are, well, that's actually that's not true. We've had them in Europe since then, and also Africa. Yeah. But the last one we've known in Europe was in Germany. And of course, everyone ran to gold because that's what they remembered. Because in the early 1920s, you know, you had a whole generation who remembered what it was like when the world operated on a gold standard. So it was right. logical for them to go to gold. In the more recent hyperinflations we've had in the recent past, like Romania or Zimbabwe or Venezuela, with those hyperinflations, everyone wants the dollar because that was the strongest yeah. currency. Yeah. So really, we're talking about a situation where the dollar fails. Um, and so some people are arguing that in that situation, you know, in more recent times, people have run to the dollar because it's the it was the most recent strong currency. Um, because, of course, you know, the dollar wasn't a gold standard until 1971. But if the dollar fails, that's when it's critical. That's when people are kind. That's when people speculate that we would end up going to back to gold. But of course. You know, the reality of gold is that, you know, that's where the fiat system kind of began in the first place. So gold isn't really a solution. There needs to be something else. And so um, I was talking, a friend of mine studying for a PhD and one of her lecturers had questioned her as to whether or not Bitcoin was a hedge or a speculation. And I used this example to tell her, you know, a hedge is when someone goes, you know, someone holds something because they're speculating that it's going to go to that when what they've got fails. So any other currency that's the that's not the dollar will hold dollars in the speculation that that's the last strong currency they remember. But when the dollar fails, the hedge is gold. But right. the speculation is that Bitcoin will become the new thing because it's an innovation that's better than gold. Yeah, yeah. It is if you objectively analyze how, yeah. how uh, stable. But... Um, um, you know, if you say the utopian prediction then is that you could make lots of money in the future by going in now, mm -hmm. uh, and notwithstanding that uh, the whole earth will somehow naturally self-regulate to a sustainable, mm -hmm. more fair, a more decentralized, democratic, you know, a wonderful actually world. I, I see a utopia, mm -hmm. but the dystopian prediction I'm going to give now, yeah. and this is what I think will happen. Unless, you know, there are ways to avoid it. Yeah. There's a way to avoid what I'm going to say. If we force, if we make them more and more integrate with Bitcoin, then it's going to be suicide, what I'm saying. So they can't do it. Plus, if we pick up our pitchforks and um, <laughs> torches, they can't do it. But they are crazy mm -hmm. and they are super cynical. They are yeah. whatever people would call define as evil is what Psychopathic. these... Psychopathic. And when a, a dangerous predator, a psychopath has mm -hmm. the back against the wall, it will do anything to lash out. Yeah. So here's what's, what they will do to stop it. Yeah. They're going to use the internet kill switch because with that, mm -hmm. Bitcoin will immediately cease. 
And with that, we can't organize and communicate and pro- what's going on. Everybody will be confused. It's like uh, we all brought back to the medieval ages, but fiat will still work. In fact, fiat will be be even more. I mean, maybe some will trade potatoes on the countryside, etc. But eventually, we get some semblance of society back. We have no cash is probably what we will go to or other like gold and all the valuable items people may have. And that's, I think, how they think they can survive if verse comes to verse. Of course, they have a plan B, a plan C, plan D. I think this is the last plan, unless they have like a nuke the entire globe. Uh, let's go under and never let them be free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, better we all yeah. we all go down with the boat. That may be on the table too. Yeah. But at least this reset, this primitive reset, instead of the great reset, this is what I think. What do you think of those uh, pessimistic thoughts? Well, um, the trouble is our existing fiat system already relies on the Internet. So I don't think (laughs) they can switch off the Internet without having having very detrimental consequences of of it themselves. The other thing a lot of people don't realize about Bitcoin is even if you switch off the Internet, the moment you switch it back on again, your Bitcoin's still there. So unless they did that for a long, sustained period of time, and even if they did, you know, as long as you've still got the data mm. on your node, you still own your Bitcoin and it's still on on your wallet. The moment they switch it on again, it's like back to back to stage one. So they're going to lose all of the the advantage they've advantages they've created for themselves by having the Internet if they switch it off. And even if they do that temporarily, it doesn't solve the problem because the moment they switch it back on again, Bitcoin's still alive and running. Yeah. So that's that's why they need to censor the internet instead, control it. They they're trying every trick in the book, mm. and they will do as much as they can. But everything they try, I think, ultimately is a shot in the foot for themselves. I mean, I think the pandemic was a long shot, and look at the effect that yeah. that's had. So yeah. I think this is a war that we're able to win. I think the biggest danger would be convincing the population of central bank digital currencies. I think that's the next battle that's on the horizon Um, because, of course, centralised digital currencies, you know, at the moment, even though we've got central banking, you know, our banks aren't allowed to give out our data willy-nilly, you know, that's been legislated for. But, of course, if you create a blockchain and have transactions that are just operating on a on a blockchain but you've got a backdoor to that blockchain that you can switch on and switch off whenever it suits you i think that would be the dystopian future whereas bitcoin Mm. is the antithesis of this and so this is why i think these conversations are so so important because people need to understand their choice they're making and not you know some cryptocurrencies are very dangerous some cryptocurrencies have the opportunity to give us a very different future and so yeah it's really important that people kind of get a handle on what the differences are so that when they're presented with this choice, they realize that it's not the only choice they have. Um, You know, because there's a danger of that. There's a danger that people will have heard that Bitcoin is just about funding, you know, dark, the internet dark web. and Trafficking drugs, whatever, terrorism. Gambling and stuff like that. So the reputation of Bitcoin has already been tainted. So before enough people can get a handle on the fact that actually this could be used for very good purposes, they could then introduce the central bank. It's designed to be used for good. Absolutely. It's in its design. That's the point. 
Absolutely. I mean, any tool can be used, used for good or evil initially. But it's very hard to uh, abuse Bitcoin for evil. That's the thing with it. It is, exactly. That's the difference. So, of course, people were convinced in the of the benefits of fiat currencies by the production of all of these welfare services. But, of course, that has a dark side as well if it's not managed correctly. So, you know, none of these things are simple. But I think... You know, the next, if I were to make a prediction, you know, the next thing on the horizon is the battle of centralized digital currencies and whether or not the public can be convinced to buy into those. And really, my mission is to educate enough people on Bitcoin so that at least they know what they're choosing when those things are presented to them as a fait accompli because it's fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not just about convincing, it's about, you know, you, you, you may not have a choice because you're in for the ride. So, um, if our government says now everything is digital, we have no choice. So, but, but I agree that the other part of the coin is to, they have to taint Bitcoin, they have to yeah. demonize it. It's a paradigm war mm-hmm. yeah. because that's the only thing they got going for them. Yeah. And that's why we need to have shows like this. And I'm now um, yeah. on this bandwagon. I'll tell you just quickly here before we close shop, what they have done in Norway already is we're almost there because we don't have real poverty and everybody has like two, three mobile phones and are very digital. And mm-hmm. so money has become a hassle, especially cash mm-hmm. and especially having to log into your every almost all bank services are done online. But even that is too much for people. So now we have something called VIPs. It started like a private company. And I think this will probably be used everywhere eventually. Uh, it's a way to make uh, fiat digital without us noticing, mm-hmm. without us voting, yeah. deciding. And so what they made, VIPs, <laughs> yeah. VIPs means like something that is quick. So they made a way, yeah. an app on your phone. So if I yeah. want to give you $10, mm-hmm. it takes me three seconds. I just go to the app and I send you send. Mm-hmm. $10, bam, and you got them immediately. Yeah. This has taken over almost all transactions, like 90% of all transactions. Even you can pay your bill, you can shop wow. in your local store, you pay a debt to someone you own, you pay it for your local gym. Everybody's using VIPs. Uh-huh. So this is Krona, which is obviously fiat, and it's digital. Yeah. And Oh, it's so convenient. And I was holding out for the longest time and people were yeah. scolding me and yeah. getting angry. Oh, you're making it so difficult and blah, blah, blah. And it started to become difficult. I went to a flea market, couldn't buy anything because oh. uh, you had to use VIPs. Yeah. This is what's, what's coming, I think. Yes. But the, yeah. the, the counter side to this is that now people are primed to realize that digital solutions yeah. may not be bad, right? So you only have to uh, replace VIPs with uh, Bitcoin. And by the way, VIPs was a private company. Yeah. Now they're in bed with the state. That's always yeah. how it goes. Yeah. The state endorses yeah. it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've got the same thing in China. I can't remember what it's called in China, but everywhere you go. E-Yen, I think. Uh, no, I don't think it's something like that. There's like mm. um, WeChat or something. And oh, it's okay. like in China, if you go to China as a foreigner, it's like you can't buy anything unless you've got this stupid app. And so, mm. yeah, this is the sneaky way in. They kind of make it convenient. I mean, the Bitcoiners are working on Lightning wallets, which would essentially do the same thing. But of course, a lot depends on what's happening in the background. And of course, governments have the ability because they've got the resources to introduce these things and make it seem convenient. And the more that people are kind of convinced into that before lightning is quite at at that level and ready, you know, this is the this is the point at which um, people can be fooled. And it will be another thing that's kind of slows down the development of Bitcoin. But the thing is, it will it will become a problem when people start to realize as 
that becomes more and more distorted or corrupted or people get to a stage where they can't use it for some reason. So, for example, in China, people's wallets can be shut off if they've got a red COVID pass, for example. And, you know, once you start doing that very quickly, people will start looking for another solution. And as long as the Bitcoiners are still working on Bitcoin and trying to make it more convenient, you know, that will be the solution that's available when people get disillusioned with that. And I think that's just a matter of time, but it, yeah. it will depend how quickly it is. And so that's the fight, I think. That's what governments will use as their tool. And it's, you know, how quickly Bitcoin can develop to fight that really, I think, is the is the central point. Yep. The only evergreens in terms of saving is going to be Bitcoin and I think still gold yeah. and uh, real estate. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. OK, Victoria, let's uh, you'd mentioned your book. So that's uh, as old as 2020. So you didn't get yeah. to uh, get in the newest developments with uh, uh, FTX and that stuff. But maybe you predicted it. I don't know. <laughs> Tell us a little about your book. Well, it's not designed, you know, it's not designed to be the most up to date. It's kind of it's kind of designed as a a broad introduction, because I think for a long time, people are still going to need that. And it's written in such a way that it's very accessible. So it's written in three main parts, like um, the beginning, the middle and the end, or um, the way I call it is the past, the present and the future. So the past Mm. kind of talks about my individual story, you know, how I became interested in Bitcoin, because I think that's something that people can relate to. Yep. It then talks about how Bitcoin was developed, talks a little bit about uh, Satoshi Nakamoto and these other digital coins. It explains how the um, network works. The middle part was then the story of me introducing it as a payment method in my own business and some of the issues that I I learned as a result of doing that. And then the third bit mm. is kind of the future, which is kind of talking about you know, rules and regulations of government, how government kind of distorts the way society works. Also talks a little bit about game theory, which is to do with computer programming and how understanding game theory can kind of manipulate populations. And it speculates on the future. So, Mm. you know, although it's written in a very simple way, there's quite a lot of interesting information in there i mean i wrote it wrote it so that it could be interesting but also as a as a really great introduction plus it sounds useful if you yourself want to do something like what you did turn around uh, your business into a new way of operating it sounds like you have lessons there yeah absolutely and so um the title is uh, truth decay how bitcoin fixes this truth decay because obviously it's based around it was influenced by my uh, career as a dentist, mm. but also my website satoshispage.com. I write uh, newsletters, which is kind, of, which are like an update to the books. Hang, hang on, what, what was the title? Um, Satoshi's page. Oh, the title of the book. No, no, the website. Oh, the website is satoshispage.com. So I write a newsletter there. So if there's a subject that comes up that I think is an update to the book, I'll often write a newsletter on that. So Mm. my latest one at the moment um, in December, I've just written about um, the FTX collapse and how I think this is going to affect the price of Bitcoin and why I think the bear market still has further to go. But of course, that's in December. By March, the situation may be different. But um, yeah, so if I think there's an interesting topic, I'll I'll update it on there. And and that's free to access and uh, people can sign up to get that news or to be notified when that newsletter is out yeah so yeah and then other projects i'm working on in the future all the information will be on there hmm. there you go so you get the updates uh, yeah. <laughs> because the world is developing so fast now but you get it on your absolutely. website yeah. yeah yeah absolutely so the book kind of gives you the foundation what's that the book gives you the foundation and then the website right. helps to keep up to date with the latest developments yeah 
yeah all right but uh, are you still operating as a dentist no i've uh i finally finished working as a dentist there were a number of loose ends i had to tie up but um i'm pretty much coming to the end of those and so yeah i'll be okay. focusing much more on working in the bitcoin space in the future because yeah, yeah. um i do have my own company and i've got ideas of how i want to develop it but they're still in the formative phase i'm still doing a lot of research but right. eventually it'll be apparent on my website that is what i'm working on mm. Okay, because if you had said yes, I would obviously ask, can people pay you in Bitcoin? But I, I look forward to the day we can well. we can do that, you know. Oh, some people do. Some people do it yeah. already. But um, yeah, the, infra- the infrastructure still needs some work, but it's getting there very quickly. It does. I'm going to contribute to it. You who listen, you know how I incentivize you to join our website, right? And get bonus stuff and get the, the releases before blah 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 from now on i'm going to make like a 50 percent discount if you use bitcoin Good idea, yeah. <laughs> what bitcoin that's so yeah. you do yeah yeah well i talk about that in my book as an incentive. what was that i talk about that in my book how businesses can offer discounts and you can vary the discount right. depending on where bitcoin is in its price cycle and ah. yeah there's a whole chapter on that in there Damn, yeah, I see. I need a book. <laughs> but uh, until then, by the way, is there anything else you want to plug or, or talk about before we close? No, 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 that's fine. No, mm-hmm. thank you. So we squeezed you for, God damn it, four hours exactly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, not a record. I think my record is six hours. Wow. Yeah, I was exhausted. Oh. But uh, we can we can top uh, Joe Rogan anytime in our long form. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's great. It's great to have the opportunity to discuss these subjects in such yeah. great detail. I think it's great. So Absolutely. Well, thank you. That was a great conversation. Would you like me to send you a signed hardback copy? I do that for the people who host me at their conferences and stuff. Oh, I... you mean for free? Yes, of course. Absolutely. No question about it. <laughs> Go ahead. Of course, because um, I'm sure the conversation will incentivize someone else to buy it. So it's the least I can do. So yeah, if you email me your address, I'll send you a signed copy as a thank you. I'll do that. No problem. Very, very nice of you. Yeah, uh, no, it's at least there's that. some um, p- guests I have on. They uh, give me maybe a digital copy. Some guests, some guests want me to buy the book. They don't realize that even if just two people listening buys the books, of course they are made up for it. But but uh, I have more book readers than uh, general. I have a little mature audience too, actually. <laughs> So yeah, still some readers among them. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, email me your address and I'll get it sent to you. Yeah. Absolutely, I will do that. Okay, no problem. And I may uh, want to invite you back in the future. Okay. Do do tell me if you have a new book uh, on the horizon. Okay, and we'll cover that. Oh, of too. course, I will. Yeah, mm. I will. I will definitely. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. So so easy to uh, understand everything you explain. This is what you were born to do, I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I try my best. Thank you. Cool. All right. Great, Great stuff, Victoria. Victoria. Thank you thank so, you much, so much, for much for your time. You're welcome. welcome. Thank, thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. If there's anything you take away from this important show, I hope it's two things. Number one, Bitcoin, not crypto. Very important to understand the difference. I suppose maybe um, that wasn't necessarily clarified in in our discussion. Um, But if you check out the show I recommended with Mark Moss called The Great Reset of Crypto is Happening. 
That's the best explanation I've encountered so far. It will certainly make everyone get it. Very clarifying, very, very entertaining. And if you think it's too long, you can always play it in 1.25 speed, for example. So that's that bit. The other is to understand the difference between exchanges and a key. For some reason, people keep their bitcoins in exchanges. And uh, to my mind, that's crazy. First of all, many exchanges will probably fall now that they have rigged what many think is a deep state false flag, this FTX thing. But whether it's a genuine scam or it's actually manufactured, it doesn't matter because the fallout from it will be the same. They will crush crypto. It's going to be a bloodbath. They can't crush Bitcoin or anything on on Bitcoin type of blockchains. So that's different. Uh, They're going to try to mark crypto as uh, what's called securities, Whereas Bitcoin is already recognized as a commodity. I think that's the, I'm not sure. Don't, don't, don't arrest me on the terminology here. I'm a newbie on this, but I, what I do understand, I convey further like I do now to you. And I do understand that whatever they, they could call Bitcoin conspiracy coins like Victoria suggests. It doesn't help. They can't do anything about it. All they can is fairmonger. So understand then that whether you have only Bitcoin or if you even have uh, cryptos, having them in an exchange is like, it's not even like a bank. Many of these, I think it's 20,000 cryptocurrencies around. And some of them are outright scams, like Ponzi scams and, and swindles. They just take your money and run. Some of them are trying, uh, like our guest said, they think they have a better idea. But at the end of the day, it's either like a bank, you give your money to the bank and they issue an IOU. If they go bust, you're screwed. But some of them aren't even like banks. Some of them, like the FTX thing, they just take your money and you have some symbolic thing. It reminds me of those who think they buy gold and they get a paperback. Yeah, we, we're having you gold. <laughs> I mean, they may do, uh, they may do it uh, legitimately. But you wouldn't know the difference if they didn't even have gold, those who said it. Uh, so as long as it's made for saving, it's certainly not going to be discovered. But at the end of the day, whether they go bust, whether they are being busted by the authorities, or whether they are scams, as long as you have something on an exchange, you don't own it. You're giving it away to someone else. And as long as they allow you to have access, you have access. At any given time, they may seize it. And and if they exchange whatever you put in for something else, like these FTX tokens, bullshit things, then they have already taken your money and given you something without value. So to the newbies, if this is complicated, just understand one thing. You need a key. You need a personal key. Never, ever give it away. Always keep it to yourself. If the program or the app or the website or whatever you do to access it doesn't give you a personal key that they themselves do not have access to, it doesn't count. It has to be a password that only you have. So this is uh, so important that before you start saving in Bitcoin that you do that basic research, like 
which way should I approach this to get get my own key? Now, I, I, I've been talking warmly about Exodus, but I've researched enough and there's other very interesting programs out there. So it's not the only one. And I'm also keeping an eye on this kind of software to see that um, it's not going to change into some kind of bullshit exchange thing. I'm, I'm sure the exchange thing works well for those who have used it so far, but uh, it's nothing you can trust. And now that they're going to crack down, they're going to take down the exchanges too. And then, bam, they seize almost everything. I think at the end of the day, what will happen is that cryptos will die uh, and everyone will go over to Bitcoin blockchains. One of these Bitcoins whether the main thing or one of these uh, forks, as they're called. Uh, it's the safest thing after all. And if we're going to, not just thinking uh, personal savings and, and profits here, if you're thinking a transformation of society, that's the way to go. It's the only way to go. I, I don't trust anything else. And the reason I trust this is it uh, stands to the basic tests where most other fails. It's decentralized. Nobody's issuing this money. Nobody controls it. You're not in someone else's computer. It's completely decentralized and spread around. It's unhackable. It's unriggable per today. It probably was in the beginning, but now it's grown too big. And it is also, I, I love the fairness of it, the justice of it. I, I just wish everybody started out with the same amount. That would be brilliant. But uh, <laughs> of course, that doesn't happen. Uh, and anyway, there will come new generations that... Uh, have to access the market like anyone else. So, yeah, someone will start with more than others because they were early out. But that unfairness, if you like, isn't worse than the current one. People are born poor today to... People are born into a super corrupt world where a few oligarchs owns a lot. And in some lucky countries, there's a middle class where they own their own thing, at least, their own house, maybe their own car. Some even a boat or a cottage or whatever. But that's as far as it goes when it comes to the plebs. The rest of the resources and the values reflecting them are already seized. So when we go over to this, it's, I don't understand why people on the left, uh, economical left, never mind the uh, woke liberals, they uh, haven't been rational for decades, but the so-called economic left should embrace this because it's 10 times more social than what we have today. It's the first currency that is unriggable and fair. It's democratic. I mean, that's the point. It's democratic. It's, it's a people controlled and it's, it's justice too. Justice and democracy is, is what it's built on. Although you can frown upon the fact that some will come into this late and therefore be poor compared to the others. But at the end of the day, it will even out because it's just a currency. So it's going to be tied up to resources. In other words, I do a service for you. You do a service for me. And we exchange with Bitcoin instead of herring or silver or paper money. So it's just like any other currency in history. And, and that's the normal economy that will, the day everyone uses or majority uses Bitcoin as a transaction, damn, the world is going to look so much better. Very hard to rig and corrupt stuff. Very hard for the huge power centers to abuse their powers. It's going to be a very interesting world when it's democratized and decentralized. We have our economic autonomy back. 
So uh, I totally understand why libertarians go for this, but it sh- it should also be true for the so-called left. What passes for left these days? I mean, I'm especially talking to Americans here, but but I suppose it's it's true most places these days. So the old school traditional left should cease this because although maybe the more statist part of the left are skeptical because the state is also kind of bypassed by this. At the end of the day, it comes back to people power. If you don't trust people power, then you're just another type of fascist. And of course, normal capitalists should love this too, because uh, market enthusiasts, they say, oh, the market is everything, the market is the people, right? They say that on paper, but in reality, they they so often end up uh, embracing uh, some corrupted, perverted version of it, which isn't a market. It's just a rigged uh, version where they use the market as an excuse, just like they use the state as an excuse. Yes, the state is you and me. Oh, the state is here to help you. And then in practice, uh, the state crushes the little man and serves the oligarch. In the same way, they do with the market. Swindles the little man and serves the big powers. So... Traditional capitalists, if you're into trading, if you if you believe in fair market, a fair uh, meritocracy, in a way, this is this is it. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting world, and I, I think what needs more discussion, and we will explore this in future show, is how the world, how societies, how the transition can happen, how we can have functioning nation states using Bitcoin as the main. Uh, Not that they're ever going to choose it, but if the people choose it, if you and me and everyone else listening just start using it, they have no choice. (laughs) They are outvoted. You know how they always say, I vote with your feet or the customer can have power. No, the customer has no goddamn power today because they're lied to, things are rigged, things aren't marked, they're ignorance, there's fraud, blah, 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 blah. I'm not even going to waste time explaining to you why that it's not that easy. It's the same as say, ah, you don't like uh, that the big tech companies uh, censor and do what they want. Well, they're private companies, just make your own. No, no. You see, what Gab tried that and Parler, they got crushed, unfairly crushed. They didn't even want the competition. Market is rigged. So it, it does not. But here, for the first time, that sentiment actually is true. Here, it actually can work. Here, we have an alternative money and we can completely make it the valid currency in the world if enough of us get it. And so spread the word. I'm not worried about the poor countries. They are forced to do it because they know from hard experience they can trust the public currency. But here in the rich, spoilt West, well, not so rich anymore, not so spoilt anymore either now that they are coming for... Uh, they have robbed and plundered everything and everyone else. Now they're coming for us, the, their own middle class. So here we have yet to get it. And we are a crucial part of this. So spread it when you get it. If you agree with these analysis, these unavoidable conclusions, I say, then uh, do your part and start implementing it. If you have some kind of business open for it, go that extra step to open transactions for Bitcoin and probably a few other coins. You should have some, um, you know, it doesn't matter if someone pays you in, uh, let's say, Ethereum. You just automatically exchange it to Bitcoin, right? So it's going to help Bitcoin even if 
Some think, yeah, Bitcoin works a little slow to be a here and now barter in practical terms. But at the end of the day, it's Bitcoin that will save the entire economy. If we can make it in time, because they are pushing hard. They're going to implement these censorship things. They're going to try to scare us from using it. They're going to outlaw it. They're going to smear it and demonize and disinform about it. That's why we need to get it and use it. So in future show, we're going to explore more how uh, you know, a future economy, a future world could function, could, how it would look with a Bitcoin kind of uh, system. And I don't think there will be too many multi-billionaires in such a world. Um, I think that's going to be hard. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're not starting from scratch in terms of resources. The resources are still seized by those. But remember, these old fuckers are going to go the way of the dodo bird unless they get on board pretty soon. And uh, so eventually they will have to yield the resources too. And uh, there's a discussion to be made though then how can states, how collectives operate in this new market without uh, taxation, etc., which will be hard. Uh, there are probably going to be other forms of fees implemented and other forms of income. There's a million ways a state can have an income so they can maintain some basic services. And I, I bet a lot of services can be expropriated to NGOs and the private market and volunteerism and stuff like that. Like it always have been in, in mankind's history. The state doing these things is a pretty new phenomenon, actually. 150 years old in many cases. So <laughs> it's not as if we are at completely unknown uh, territory here. So that's what I wanted to say about that. So stay tuned. Uh, I'm um, very encouraged uh, about this. And I see this, honestly, as our last chance. If if this falls, we're utterly screwed. The transhumanist big tech dystopia in front of us is... There's no way back. So uh, we have no choice, really, if you're fighting for anything natural and traditional, like healthy stuff, like human, humanistic, human-centered stuff. Um, basic values than uh, wake up and smell the coffee. Now, in line with this, not only have we opened long ago to receive cryptos for, you know, if you want to subscribe to our website and get access to unreleased shows and 10 at any given time, one in, one out, right? We eventually release everything, but also you get, get it long before it comes to the market and some bonus stuff. But if you use Bitcoin, we give you 50% off. Now, we always work with donations. We don't have a fixed amount. We just say the minimum is a dollar a month. And most people actually, I think 60% actually do donate more than one a month because they think the value is more than a dollar a month. But uh, however much you do uh, choose, if you're going to keep to the lowest you know, barely passing the bar, then uh, $6 a year will get you through it if it's Bitcoin. If it's not Bitcoin, it's going to be the $12 a year, you know, $1 a month thing. So, um, yeah, I'm walking as I'm talking. And uh, by the way, a little fact check. The show I really recommended to realize how utterly corrupt the markets are, which is this excellent documentary by Corbett, simply is called... The markets are rigged. <laughs> I should have remembered that title. So it's actually episode 401, but it comes with a video. So you should see that. 
Uh, and it's so, so important. I love it so much. I'm going to read the description to you. At the base, the markets are a con game where the rich and powerful employ a raft of confidence men to lure suckers into the latest mania. In this game, the suckers are the general public who are left holding the bag as the market bubble bursts while the smart money swoops in to buy up the leftover assets at pennies on the dollar. In this week's edition, the Corbett Report pulls back the curtain on the Wall Street casino and reveals how the house always wins the rigged games. I suppose this isn't uh, any shock for you. We all know the revelations, how Congress are completely bought and are part of this casino culture. Um, most people have registered how they are unethically, if not illegally, because, you know, laws can always be changed in their favor. That's how they legalized bribery, direct bribery, unethically exploiting their positions to personal gain in the markets. And also after COVID, of course, the lockdowns, how that was a gift. That was basically a complete looting of the economy from the many to the few. So we're going back to the feudal ages and you better keep up if you want to understand what's going on around you. Enough preaching. I'll, I'll leave you with this quote from Rick Falkvinger, the founder of the Pirate Party. He said, Bitcoin will do to banks what email did to the postal industry. So mote it be. That's it. The bells are chiming and I'm signing off. Thanks for listening. As always, I've been your host, Al. Reminding you that a wise man have money in his head, but not in his heart. Be seeing you. Number one.